Hello and welcome to the TetraCast. I am Brian Vitale, and joining me today are George Foster. Hi, guys. Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And James Galizio. Hey. All right. This is uh, the regular crew back again for another edition of the TetraCast. This would be the last one in February if it not were, were not for Leap Day next week. So it's kind of crazy to think that February is almost already come and gone. Um, so we're, we're moving into the meat of the year. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of announcements. We've got PAX coming up. There's been a lot of news kind of just in the general gaming space about PAX, about, you know, health concerns, about people <clears throat> pulling out, people who are still going. Uh, we're obviously interested in some uh, exciting announcements that we're expecting to hear from that event or from announcements that are kind of uh, time aligned alongside that event. But before we go into those topics, uh, as always, we're just going to go into what we've been playing leading up to that uh, event that we're looking forward to. So uh, I don't know who wants to go first. I guess I'll just pick one. Uh, Adam, what have you been uh, up to? Uh, I think you've had a couple trips. You put up a preview for Persona uh, over the mm -hmm. last week. You've been playing a few other things. So uh, I'll let you have your pick of what you want to talk about. Well, uh, this week I did go on a trip to another publisher to preview a game but i cannot talk about it so oh I'll that's uh that. that's a tease <laughs> yeah um all right but what about this even... one you can't talk about yeah it's an it's an announced game but i can't talk about the trip but uh oh, maybe, maybe otherwise so otherwise i haven't week. really had that much time to play uh the games because i was kind of preparing for that but i finished up the fire emblem dlc and we already talked about that last week uh but just to kind of re reiterate those thoughts um so you have the side story that you play through in Cindered Shadows, which basically unlocks these new characters and classes you can use. And then you can basically redo one of the main storyline routes in the game, uh, only now having these new characters and classes basically being available to you as you play through the game. And we talked about last week how it, it won't the storyline doesn't change in any significant way at all or anything like that, but having the new characters, they feel like they belong. Uh, they have their own... Uh, support conversations not only with each other but with some of the existing characters uh, and so they uh, it kind of fills in the little pieces here and there of the world building and the character building and the character dynamic character relationships that already exist in the game so it's basically just adds more of that and, and I felt I that's one of the things. I think where we were at um, last week is that we had, we had both kind of played through the standalone story, but we were still making way, like we were basically doing our imported regular playthroughs yeah. with the um, with the additions in place. So obviously we didn't have enough time to completely scour all the additions, but now we've, we've basically done that because uh, as part of our, um, you know, coverage for the game, we also do have a bunch of guide content, which is up on the site. And obviously when in, with new... Uh, new characters, new supports comes, new dialogue options and things like that. So uh, we had kind of multiple reasons to look through all the different route options and how the new characters interact and how I believe like each of the four new characters has some interactions with Lord or route specific characters. So basically how much, how much um, benefit you're gonna see from the additions is gonna be dependent on the route you pick and which characters you obviously you happen to use. So. It almost, if you wanted to be completely completionist, now that you've got these four characters, you have a reason to play through every route again. So yeah. if you've got, uh, if you've already got four under your belt and you want to see absolutely everything, you need four more. I don't know if you need exactly four more if you can get away with three, but basically there's something, there's something, there's something, right? There's something to see on pretty much every route. Maybe not 
exactly. But around. one thing that I think is just kind of cool is like they didn't have to do this, but you know how in Fire Emblem games, uh, so for various certain boss fights, certain characters will have special dialogues with the boss if they have like a, you know a unique relationship with them or a reason to talk and. And I always find that kind of neat because you don't have to have that. But if you have some character and some boss character, some enemy, and they have like some characters will have special dialogue with them uh, before they fight the reference, you know, the relationship or the conflict or whatever that they personally have. And these new Ashen Wolves characters will do have some of those dialogues included. Like, for example, uh, Balthus is, has a relationship with Hilda and Claude. Uh, in a way. And so he has supports with them. Uh, so that's cool. And it kind of fills in where he fits in as part of the the, the Lester Alliance. But like, if you go on to the, uh, so I did the uh, Crimson Flower route, where you side with Edelgard. And in that route, you do take on Hilda and Balthus will have a conversation with her if you if you have him encounter her. And it's one of those things like, it's just a small little bit. And it's not hugely significant but the fact that they when making this dlc they included little pieces like that it's like it's an attention to detail that you appreciate right because it makes and sense that he also, would say something <laughs> like when i i did a playthrough where i was using lysithia and balthist and they ended up semi-spoiler had a paired ending and obviously the paired endings in this game aren't super significant they're just like title they're just little like cards of information in the credits or preceding the credits but they they integrate them that way too it's not like they they, they wrote new bespoke endings for characters depending on if they pair up with ashen wolves or not so because these ashen wolves don't have any like um they don't have any direct presence in the in the main cutscenes, like in the end of month uh encounters but they integrate them in every other possible way so uh, i do think it's it's worth replaying especially if you really like kind of absorbing your lore and your um your information about the world through those support conversations through those little unnecessary but nice to have dialogues pre-battles i almost wish you could use like the um the uh the time wheel i forget what it's called where you where you turn back the turns uh it's got a different name in every game divine pulse uh, and that yeah in this game it's divine pulse um, I wish you could do it after the battle ends for multiple reasons, because sometimes you end up finishing off the boss with a character who doesn't need EXP, and you're like, oh, darn it, I wanted, I wanted to feed that EXP to my low-level character. But also, it's like, oh, okay, so now I've seen how, for instance, Constance and Edelgard have a talk before their um, fight in a certain chapter. I want to see if any of the other ones have a talk. And so I always kind of want to like wish that I could just kind of like, you know, shuffle through those before actually finishing the battle, because I do enjoy little seeing those. Uh, and that's been kind of a staple of the series for a while, and I'm glad that they um, still incorporate those to that extent. Yeah, so otherwise, the other game I've been playing is I talked a few weeks ago, I think, about playing through the original Baldur's Gate, and I'm still doing that. And it's, like, I was talking about, I think it was two weeks ago, basically, as someone who hasn't played too many computer-style RPGs, and also just kind of relatively new to Baldur's Gate, and D&D in general, Baldur's Gate being based on D&D structure and rules and everything, uh, I found the early opening hours of the game to be kind of frustrating and difficult because it's so open to the player in terms of how you build your character and uh, how you construct your party and even which direction you go on the map. And you you can make a lot of bad mistakes, and I was kind of just winging it. And you you sort of just learn by struggling. 
and not knowing what you're doing. And but now at this point, I'm now I'm now in chapter five of seven, I think is the total number of chapters. So I'm kind of getting to that home stretch. And it's definitely has smoothed out a bit. Uh, I think the fact that my characters are now in a rhythm, like gaining some levels, I kind of have a party that's kind of clicked together now and uh, can support each other and make sense. And you can I know what I'm doing. Spells more than once per rest. Right. Like uh, it's. I'm still. I'm. I'm almost positive that I'm not playing this game like ideally. Like I'm probably. I probably made some really stupid like character building mistakes and like having people learn uh, spells or abilities or a party member that's kind of superfluous and not not ideal. Well, don't you have like two thieves? I do have. Well, one, my main character is a gnome illusionist who is a gnome illusionist thief. So he's kind of like a, both a thief and a mage. But then I also have another thief who is a uh, a bow wielding character. And chances, and the thing is, I probably don't need that other character. Uh, the one thing that is sort of useful about having two thieves is that they can both set traps. So I can now set twice the number of snares. So there, are, there have been a couple of encounters where when you enter a door, there's a bunch of enemies. And if you go in there and fight, it's pretty tough. But there have been a couple of encounters where I was like, okay, this is tough. So I'm going to reload my save. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put have both characters put a bunch of snares right outside the door and then kind of lure them out. And they obviously twice the snares, twice the damage. And that's, I've done that several times. So that's that's the one benefit of it. But yeah, I'm kind of approaching the end. I'm, I'm now I'm now enjoying it more that it's not so frustrating, and you kind of just have to you kind of just have to put in that time to figure it out. And from yeah, what and, I have heard from people who are more familiar with the series than I am, so the storyline so far is actually more low key than I expected. It's not so in your face. It's not like I would say most of this game is not especially story driven. It's more like world driven, where you have all these places and these characters interacting in this world but it's not like a really heavy plot line if that makes sense do you agree no i agree and i think that's a good term for it because you sometimes decide between like a binary is a character driven where it's like the motivation of the characters are driving force or is it story driven where there's some objective that has to be done and this kind of feels like both of those sort of take a back seat at least for the first game uh because i would definitely say that once you get to the um the uh, Siege of Dragon Spear, that is definitely just kind of more pure story driven. Uh, and later games do kind of up the ante in terms of the scope of the story it's telling. But I will say for Baldur's Gate 1, I, I do think I agree that it's just kind of like, here is here is kind of the minimum, bio, I don't want to say minimum, that's bad, that's, that's negative connotation, but here's like a small scale story that's just enough to give you the motivation to like travel to these places and to understand you know people's mindsets about the different races about uh, the the conflict between Baldur's Gate and Om um, and things like that and then the uh, the expanded edition or the enhanced edition does add a few more characters that obviously have a couple years of hindsight behind their design like Nira and um, uh, that monk I forget his name uh, which their their stories are a little bit more involved and they give you like more insight on uh, the wild mages and uh, things like that being a to, to actually finish my thought that I had um, from what I hear from people more familiar with the series than me is that like the ending of Baldur's Gate like the way the game concludes which I'm, I assume I'm getting to that point is what really hooks people uh, for some reason or another and I've heard that from I've heard yeah, that from multiple that. people so I'm trying to so I guess I'll see what they mean uh, yep 
I was kind of planning on just playing the original game for now and then taking a break, a little bit of a break, just so I don't wear myself out, and then jumping into Siege of Dragon Spear, which is sort of the updated midquel, and then Baldur's Gate 2. Yeah, well, Dragon, Seeds of Dragon Spear kind of feels like a filler arc. I think we talked about it, but the other three, Baldur's Gate 2 into Throne of, Throne of Ball, uh, it's basically a continuous story. So you might not want to stop for too long, I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, uh, it's obviously chaptered and segmented, but it's obviously it's the same character going through and characters will reappear and things like that. Uh, so that's good. Um, and then obviously uh, we have one of our news topics that we'll talk about more in depth is that Larian did announce that we should see gameplay within the next week for Baldur's Gate 3, which is obviously a different developer, and we don't haven't seen anything yet so far. Uh, so that'll be something that we're looking forward to. All right. Uh, so, George, you have listed here that you've been playing Remind, the data bosses on Critical. As someone that's also playing through that right now, I don't envy you. So uh, how are you doing so far on fighting those guys on the hardest difficulty there? Well, because I reviewed uh, the game on Standard, because I was like, right, I want to get sort of the base experience what everyone's gonna go through i was like right one day i'll do these critical bosses probably won't have much trouble with them uh and then i found that i was struggling on them with standard oh and like, i've played every single kingdom hearts out there but i was really really struggling um eventually i did it all beat Yazora, did a boss guide for the site and now i'm doing it on critical and i'm looking back and i'm like you you really don't have any like room for failure on critical it is incredibly challenging uh, but oh, that's kind of why through it that's what i love yeah and i'm playing through it on proud which is that my, i never made a second playthrough so when they when the one of the early game updates added critical i just never really had the time or inclination to replay through it so i'm doing the boss fights on proud which is hard enough because like obviously i haven't played the game for a year so I'm 50% rusty. How do I dodge or block? Um, how do I do this? Like, what do I do if I'm staggered in midair? Like, I just don't know how to play the game anymore. And then on top of that, I'm reintroducing myself with these um, data bosses. So it's I'm basically doing, I should have used myself into it a little bit more. Uh, Especially with these fights. Right. Adam, and... you've you've done them, haven't you, on Critical? I believe. Yeah, I I had a Critical run, and when the uh, DLC was released, I just used my Critical file to play them. And to be honest, I actually sort of regret it <laughs> because the only thing you get out of doing it on Critical is just the uh, the the bragging rights, I guess, to say that you did. Yeah. Um, they some of the bosses. Yeah, they're very like. I'm trying to remember some of the bosses I had a lot of difficulty with. So one of the ones that you have to do, I think I actually mentioned this in a previous podcast, but one of the ones you have to do later is Xion. And Xion oh, I is love Xion's fight. Is, it's a very cool fight. It's probably my favorite of the yeah, of all of them. But it's extremely tough, especially on Critical. Uh, I think other fights I had trouble with, and I think Brian took him on last night. Uh, Proud was uh, the Riku replica. Oh God! Yeah, yeah. I have not. I, I forget. I forget what he says, but he says something like, "You can't stop me," and he goes into like his dark aura form. And basically, at that form, it's just like, "Get out! Just get the hell out!" Oh, oh pretty, much, pretty much every. Yeah. Pretty much every boss has a. I think. I think the casual. What, what the term that people have adopted for it is desperation move, where yeah. every almost every boss has a sequence. Actually, maybe every single boss does have a sequence where you can't do much damage or maybe any damage for. Sometimes like a good whole minute or minute and a half. But the thing is, is that like 
for Saix, it's just like dodge in a circle and you should avoid most of the damage. For um, uh, Young Xehanort, it's like block a few attacks and you'll find him and you'll break his armor down. And I think yeah, for like see, Marluxia... Young Xehanort's the one I can... just beat. And then um, like Marluxia, you can cast fire and you can get rid of his armor or whatever. But then for Dark Riku, it's just like there's nothing you can do. Just try to survive. Yeah, there really isn't. Just get out. To... <laughs> just, just get the hell out. But uh, so I think I've got like four bosses down. Um, I needed to like one thing that I do appreciate the data bosses is that I'm actually looking at like the cuisine bonuses, which I've never bothered to look at before. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, if I just if I eat these things, I can get like 30 extra MP and 40 extra health. Uh, you know and what? If you like incidental bonuses to strengthen one magic. one bonus i found actually that was pretty useful was the one that allows you to cast kiraza once because when the thing is in a lot of these boss fights when you cast like kiraga to heal yourself then you're unless you throw an elixir or something your your mp is basically absent for a while because it has to it has to recharge and some for several of the bosses i had a food bonus that allows you to cast kiraza and that's nice because when you basically get your, I forget what they call it, but that bar filled up when you're when you do enough attacks that sometimes unlocks, you know, a form change or a or a special move. It, it sometimes unlocks like a Karaza spell you can use. So it's kind of like a free, it's like a free heal in a way. And it's an off MP charge heal basically. Yeah, and it doesn't cost MP, so it's. I found that actually pretty useful to have, and like it, it like you could use it maybe two or three times a battle depending on how many hits you get in, and not have to cast Kuraga or use an elixir so it's just basically another chance to heal and i found I that really no useful you do that. yeah it's one of the food bonuses where like if you if you have certain food in a certain order you can you'll get that it's it's a reaction command or whatever they call it yeah uh, i'm gonna have to so look into that then because it's I'm, useful to have I'm but as a general I, yeah as, as a general idea though i do appreciate when i'm playing a game on like a harder difficulty and these mechanics that were usually like too like superfluous or too like limited in scope to be useful and all of a sudden i'm looking at those like i'm looking at the summons like which summons will help should i slide any of those or shortcuts and i'm actually looking at like my items because before yeah. it was just like slot cura and you're fine for the for the for the rest of the game on and it's not like i'm playing it on easy i'm playing it on proud which i know isn't the same as critical but it's just for most of the game none of that stuff matters the uh if you do these fights then you'll eventually get the secret fight which i don't feel like i have to hide the identity of now yazora right. but you will need links for that fight. Uh, yes. I think it's Ariel's one. Uh, I forget Ariel's what called, is but, really but, useful. Yeah, yeah, that you need that. So just remember that. And and weirdly, thinking about it, I think it's actually easier on critical than proud, because I think on oh, proud don't you don't deal as much damage. I know I know the way they're they're structured, but this might just be something I heard back playing Kingdom Hearts too. But I always heard that it was easier to do it on critical. I don't know if that's true. Because you, well, yeah, I, I can sort of maybe glean what the uh, intention there is, where it's like, uh, yeah, you take more damage, but you know, you're gonna die super quick anyway, so you might as well boost how much damage you're dealing in the in the few opportunities that you have. So like, I can I can sort of see how that would work out to be true. Well, like for um, but, one reason why Ariel is so useful is that, or doing a summon link is useful is because they do heal you as well so what i actually ended up doing for some of the fights was rather than casting kiraga uh i would just do the summon instead and that heals you a little bit not all the way but really for a for a boss fight like that you don't all you all you really need is to have more than one hp uh it doesn't matter if you have a lot more or a little bit more really as long as you have more than one um and so sometimes i would just rather than casting kiraga just cast the aerial summon and then you'd 
heal yourself and go into a sequence where it's hard to hard for them to hit you and you can do you know a fair bit of damage for a good her her, her link lasts a while like a good 30 seconds or whatever um, maybe not that long but 20 or 30 seconds it's it's, it's a pretty lengthy link and you can do some damage so it, it works out <laughs> But in general, I was saying that uh, I really appreciate when I'm playing a game on a harder difficulty and I'm starting to look at these other systems that I just never bothered to before. And when I was playing the matting mode on Three Houses and I was looking at uh, gambits more and the um, the gambit bonus that allows you to move farther or count, uh, counterattack from any distance or take no damage, even though you don't deal any. So as just a general premise, that is one reason why I think it's I, valuable to replay through games on harder difficulties. Even if it's not always the better experience outright, it does at least get you to look at some other systems that you might have ignored before. Yeah, I 100% I hundred percent agree with you um, how higher difficulties basically sort of force you in order to succeed or at least do well to really dig into like the game mechanics, how different pieces come together. Uh, and also, like, if you're taking on a certain boss creature or whatever, a certain combat encounter, to really learn the ins and outs of that specific encounter, like what can they do and what can you do to counter that to counter it. And if you're playing on a normal difficulty or an easy difficulty, you can kind of you don't really need to pay as much attention to all the different components. You can just of brute the force system. it with your favorite. Yeah, so. you can just brute force, like just attack and then heal every once in a while. I was saying, I, one thing I do kind of regret is that. I was doing some of the fights in the early part of the Remind DLC where you pick between Sora and the other character. And one of those, that other character is Kyrie. I did the, tried the fight once with Kyrie, and uh, I was learning the bosses like moves and where to dodge, where to block, where to attack. But then I, I failed just because I was still learning it. And I'm like, let me just try Sora. And then Sora just like deletes this person's health bar because he's so like powerful yeah. at this point. And I almost wish like oh, I should have just kept trying it with the other one and actually learning the fight. Because now I just blew through it and I don't really have a good memory even of how the fight worked. Uh, and I almost feel like I cheated myself of it. So maybe eventually I'll go back and play it like maybe on Critical or something. Well, that, that, might, be, that might be too masochistic playing it only Kyrie on Critical. But uh just that general sentiment of feeling like I cheated myself out of a better experience just by taking the uh, the easy option. It's especially interesting that you you did it on that fight as well because Kyrie is so much fun to play as. Like, it's surprising that they've given her so many moves considering she's only in one fight. So, just looking ahead to the future, I'm I'm pretty sure she'll be one of the main playable characters for the next well, game. Also, just she's, like she's got even... like a dive animation and everything. Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna go into. Like they they've designed these cool animations, like her shot lock and her like the combo attack with Sora. And I, uh, you're probably not gonna see, or well, not probably you won't see those if you just decide to play with only Sora. And like that's stuff that was put into the game that you just could not even know ever existed if you just keep going with a safe option. So. If I were to do it again, I would probably give every fight its fair handful of tries using the other character, just so I could see their their animations, their unique abilities, their and just have a even just have a better experience in the fight overall. But I've been enjoying it, and as soon as this podcast is wrapped up, I'm probably gonna like just go right back to it and see if I can clear out. Uh, I think I'm on Marluxia next, but uh, slowly but surely knocking those out. Uh, Marluxia yes, is not too bad for like 99% of the fight until the very end. It's kind of like it's basically <laughs> what makes or break the what makes or breaks that fight is the last, basically his his very last desperation move. But yeah, it's uh, something where uh, I've I've really enjoyed coming back to it, and I finally feel after like 24 hours that I knocked the rust off. 
so I'm and I, I I'm kind of even though like we all kind of or not maybe that we, we all but many of us kind of dunk on some of the Kingdom Hearts's more sillier aspects. Like it's still compelling. I'm still like eager to see like, well, what happens next? Because it's like, like I've seen that special. What movie is what is up with the Sizora guy? Yeah, yeah, and then obviously you've seen like how it's tied to you know spoilers versus thirteen in ter- in terms of like borrowed identity or whatever you want to like poetically describe that as like i want to see like how strong how strongly tethered is that where does it lead what are the, i'm i want to stay on top of it because it's just i i do think it is compelling even if it is silly uh so that's what i'm going to be doing probably for the rest of the weekend unless the boss fights take way too long because i'm just not very good at them all right so the last person that i don't think has talked yet is uh james you have been playing stuff that has not been fire emblem or kingdom hearts so what have you been up to this last week um, ironically enough, both games I played this week, um, kind of tie into what I was playing last week. Like, when I was playing through Hero Must Die for review and whatnot, and that's still coming, by the way, just so people can know. Um, one thing that was in the back of my mind, like, one of the mechanics in Hero Must Die is that obviously time moves forward and there's, like, a world map and time, like, like, as you're walking across the world map, like, time actually moves forward. And I had played a bit of Atelier Aisha. I, I think that's how it's pronounced. I don't know. <laughs> um, like, back in 2016 on my Vita. And I wanted to get back into it eventually, but I just never found the time. I wasn't in the right mindset. You know how it goes. Um, but... Playing Hero Must Die, like, the um, the way that the time mechanics worked, like, while moving across the world map kind of reminded me of Atelier, and the idea of, like, time management seemed appealing to me for since I had just played that, so I figured, you know what, I'm in the right mindset, let's see if I can play Atelier, and I ended up just kind of binging the game over the course of a few, of a few days. So, um, it was my first Atelier, like, I been interested in the series and i actually own the entire dust trilogy on vita but for whatever reason i just hadn't gone around to it until now and it was funny because like i opened up my game and it's like i was just at the very beginning and it was like save date i was like june like something 2016 it's like okay i guess i'm uh restarting <laughs> but um um has anyone else here played any atelier or or uh I'll just be blunt uh, I, and honest that the series does not really interest me. So I probably will never play them. No, I haven't either. I, I just have too many other things I want to play that take that so, I'm more so sorry to be in. a communal strikeout, but no, I haven't either. I'm 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 I I'm glad they exist in terms of I do think they're interesting, I do think they're different, I do think they have a unique kind of identity in terms of the way they're marketed and presented. But I and some of the the themes at play, but I just haven't played any. Well, um, so tell me, why did why did you play uh, Aisha? Why did you pick this one? Um, because I'd always heard that the Dust Trilogy was probably the best place for people to get started, which was definitely true when I picked them up originally in 2016. Uh, I think people now think that Ryza is the best one to start with, but uh, I had Dust Trilogy, so I'll start with Aisha. Um, I really do like the. Uh, um, crafting mechanics, which good thing because if you you if you don't, it's you're not going to like until you're yeah. Um, it's very confusing at first, and I do understand that apparently the uh, crafting system or the alchemy system, I should say, is pretty different depending on each game, even within the same trilogy. 
but uh, basically the way it works in Aisha, I'm going to keep pronouncing it that way because I know it's probably wrong, but it's my best guess at it. <laughs> correct, correct them in the comments if anyone's reading comments. There you go. Yeah, the thing but, is, Aisha uh, is not even like a purely like Japanese name. I think like like Steph Curry's wife is Aisha Curry. Uh, Aisha, yeah. All right, but um, so the way it works is that um, you have to. Uh, so for each of the like <clears throat> alchemy um alchemic items that you want to create, they have um they have a specific ingredients that you need to put into the uh, cauldron in order in order to create them. But usually it's not anything specific. It's rather like types of items. So for example, maybe a type of plant, a type of liquid, a type of ore, that sort of stuff. And then there's like some more advanced stuff that does require specific things to be uh, alchemized first. And then you put them in with other ingredients. And like at first, like the stuff you're going to be making is really weak because the uh, ingredients that you're finding aren't the best. And it's interesting how like once you get further on into the game and you start learning how to like game the alchemic system, you can really like make some really overpowered stuff. Like um, there's this um, one thing I, I remember is like right at the end, I found out how to make big ice bombs that do a ton of damage just by abusing the hell out of this uh, one attribute of, uh, of honeycombs that's like well it's well made and like one of the things that really determines how powerful like uh or how quality of an item is is the quality meter and usually the way it works is that um quality is an average of the quality levels of each of the ingredients but if you have if you add the well-made um attribute to the uh <clears throat> to the alchemic process early and you like boost it you can actually instead of it being an average every time you add something into the cauldron you uh increase the quality level so if you can like abuse that using like um power pour or something <clears throat> you can just keep stacking that and that also helps with um like if you want to use one item that has like high like levels for the like elemental ingredients but maybe the quality isn't amazing you could abuse the um, well-made attribute so you can just like keep pouring in this one while also keeping quality high. So once you're done, it's like, okay, I have an S rank ice bomb that does like 400 damage or something. Yeah. Your description so here not- is reminding me of a couple different things. Like there's two, the two things that I think about, some of them are stronger parallels than others. Is I think of Pokemon breeding, <laughs> which it's weird to draw an analogy from that to crafting, but you know, like, the, the idea of transferring IVs or having specific hold items so certain qualities are passed down or whatever. And then I think of, my memory is more foggy on this, but the crafting system that was in uh, Dragon Age Inquisition, um, I don't remember the details, but I do remember that it was kind of fun and interesting to uh, kind of reason out exactly what materials you needed, uh, what was the best and most efficient use of you know implementing those so that you get the strongest weapon or armor out of it. That's just the way my mind works. I really do kind of enjoy it. Like crafting systems are so easy to mess up or make tedious or make pointless because you'll just find something better in shops or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it's always kind of good. We obviously haven't played Atelier, so I can only glean based on your description. But I, I think it sounds like something I'd really like. I really do like kind of learning the nuts and bolts of 
you know, how these are going to change the parameters on my character and make it this much stronger or this much better. Uh, and sometimes crafting systems are just so, I guess some people don't think like that. They're too mechanical. They're too like mathematic where, uh, they're just not interesting, but I, I do usually find them pretty interesting. Uh, so well, even though I don't like the general like aesthetic of the, you know, these, uh, usually girls, you know, uh, sorry, alchemy. construction sounds outside. I'm not sure. how. <laughs> can't help that. it. Uh, but uh, it does sound like that's something that's part of this game that I really would enjoy. So when yeah. I think of uh, crafting systems, the one game that comes to mind for me is Star Ocean Four. Brian, I think, has played this. Uh, uh, it's been a while, and I think I actually played you pl watched you play it a bit. But yes, I, it does ring a bell. Yeah, and kind of. I think this is sort of what you're getting at. Is like I think some people, when it comes to crafting, they're maybe too worried on like making it making something that's like absolutely perfect the first time um and then they kind of just shy away from it because they just don't want to make a mistake or whatever but they don't want to waste 4, resources or whatever right but in star ocean 4 that crafting system you can do so many stupid things with it and by stupid i mean like if you know what you're doing you can break the games wide open and in fact for like star ocean games it's kind of amusing in a way like the normal game like the regular playthrough of star ocean 4 for instance is balanced in a way where you really don't have to mess with crafting too much to to, to 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 beat it but if you do you can totally break that game wide open and like defeat the final boss who is normally pretty tough in like a, a handful of hits because you're just way overpowered but not only just like damage wise the, the crafting the, the crafting system in that game you can also make it so you like earn like literally like 800 percent more money or whatever and you can just break the game economy wide open but then if you go into like the post game stuff there you kind of have to uh, dig into it or at least you make it a lot easier if you do and it's probably not as in-depth as at uh, atelier games but it's just kind of like figuring out how you can mess with the game's mechanics and systems through the crafting system and kind of bend it to your will i always found that kind of neat actually it does take it, there is a learning curve though to kind of figure out how do you do this? And well, I don't uh, remember some the people, specifics, I think, but I remember it being it. like the numbers that you get. Like these are gonna, these are gonna be you know, off the top of my head or out of my ass, depending on your point of view. But uh, some of the numbers where it's like a standard end game weapon before getting into like the post game will have an attack strength of one fifty. But if you craft something using this technique and this character and this bonus, you end up being like ten or fifteen or twenty times that. It's just yeah, like yeah, you're, you're not you're not getting anywhere in the end game without learning these systems. It's orders of magnitude different sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which unfortunately can get uh, in this the area the era we live in where it's usually pretty easy to find go to a Reddit page and find some tabulated values where it's just like do this in this order and it'll spit out this weapon with this strength and there you go. But I do I do enjoy kind of that failure mechanic uh, where it's through failure just that process of iterating and learning the system. Because rather than just kind of punching in numbers or punching in items that a spreadsheet tells you and you're not really understanding what or why you're doing it. Um, and then one other, one last crafting system that I do think was pretty cool because of the way it incorporated a gameplay element. It was the um, Dragon Quest XI with the, uh, the, oh, yeah. like, the portable forge with like the little mini game where you had to like fill the bars but not too much. There's stuff like that which makes it a little bit less of a spreadsheet <coughs> or mathematical thing. Uh, any effort to kind of make it like to gamify it is appreciated so yeah. i do also enjoy those i'll definitely say that so far um ayesha or again aisha 
definitely has my favorite crafting system I've ever seen in a game so far. I'll see if that changes when I play the other Dust Trilogy games. Maybe it'll change. Maybe if I go back to Arland, I'll like the Arland alchemy a bit better. Um, main reason I didn't start with Arland, though, even though it is the first trilogy, well, not the first trilogy, but the first trilogy on Vita, um, is because of the time requirements. So Atelier games have historically had time requirements or deadlines built into their game design. So like, and in the Arlen games, those were supposed to be relatively strict. So generally, if you didn't know exactly what to do at which point in time, your first time playing an Arlen game, you would probably get a bad ending. So uh, I hear I heard that uh, Aisha was uh, a bit better balanced, so that you probably would be fine if it was your first Atelier. You wouldn't have to like replay the game, and they were right. I was able to do it fine, but it's really interesting how the kind of deadline mechanic and the like constantly moving timeline works with the gameplay. So one of the things that Aisha does is that um, once a month for like a week or something like that there's a bazaar that goes on in the main city so if you're moving around the map you and you want to make sure that you can go back to like pick up some of the ingredients from the bazaar you have to keep that in mind as you're exploring the map there's also like every now and then there's like contests for like value like high value like gear kind of like you show it off and whatnot and that happens like twice a an in-game year so you have to remember when that's going on and plan accordingly so you can both be around the city when when the contest is going on and also make sure that you've crafted something for the contest before it um before it's finished so you can actually submit it now if i remember correctly i think shali which is the third game in that trilogy at telier shali is the first game that actually dumped the timeline mechanic. I, think. I that sounds right. I could yeah. be wrong. Cause uh, I know that I, I cover a lot of like the news updates for these games on our site. So I sort of get it. I sort of uh, get some of this by osmosis, even though I haven't played them, but I know it's roughly around there is when they sort of cut out the time limit stuff. And I know some people appreciate that. And it was probably an attempt to try to make the game I have a broader appeal to people who are just like turned away by that. But of course, you know, there's obviously the, 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 the classic crowd of people who really appreciated that component to it and kind of wish it was still there, but it's not. Um, one thing I'll say about Aisha, and I don't know how I'd feel about the time limit in the Arlen games, but I feel like the amount of time that you're given in this one is more than enough to the extent where I actually liked having the time limit because it forced me to constantly be thinking about what I wanted to do next, but it wasn't so stressful that it felt like I couldn't kind of uh, walk around and sniff the roses, if you get what I mean. Oh. But um, I actually think it's thematically appropriate, the time limit, considering the main plot point, which this again happens within like the first 10 minutes, is that you start off the game with Aisha, and apparently her her sister like disappeared like a year ago or something like that and she goes to her grave in this like ruins where where she gathers herbs for like her for her because she doesn't doesn't start off as an alchemist she starts out as an apothecary um 
And that's one interesting thing about Dusk, and it's the other reason I started playing, is the uh, whole Dusk trilogy is actually, like, post-apocalypse, like, very distant future, where there's, like, ruins of an ancient civilization and whatnot, and kind of an interesting, like, uh, layout for the world, I feel like. But, um, but yeah, so you you first find out that, oh, no, she, oh, wait, she's, um, her sister's not dead. She's, like, trapped somewhere, and this uh, mysterious man basically tells Aisha... Yeah, you can save her. I'm not going to tell you how. All you need to do is basically study those flowers. And I'm going to say, you should be able to figure it out on your own. And then he is an unhelpful jerk for most of the game. <laughs> but um, I actually think, and I do know that story usually isn't a strong suit of Atelier games. But I do think that um, this one was pretty interesting. Because it's not the, like, it's always in the back of your head. But it's not like, well... Zach would talk about these games a lot. Zach being a, a former member of our website, and he did most of our reviews uh, for those games as they released. And I totally understand the appeal to this, even if it may not interest me too much personally, but the appeal being, uh, from what I understand, a lot of the games, their storylines are maybe more personal storylines about the characters that you're playing as and kind of a personal conflict to them, rather than save the world from some evil threat that's going to destroy it. And th that's in general, vaguely here. I know each game is probably going to be a little different, but that's having a sort of a different story focus is what I understand is one of the differences, is one of the appeals. Is that what you gather from Aisha? Yeah, it definitely feels like, well, it's a personal story, but because of how the story works out, it does tie into like broader picture sort of deal. And it actually makes the ending pretty interesting. And I'm interested to see how or if the Everdust Trilogy games kind of build upon that ending. But um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time for Yesha. Um, it's actually kind of interesting. Like, Gust, like, it's my, this is my first Gust game I actually played. It was really... <sighs> so... There isn't that much enemy variety in terms of combat. Like, you do have a few bosses, but, like, I'd say you have, like, nine base enemy types and then just recolors. So, usually that would bother me in a game, but because the main aspect of the game isn't necessarily the combat, but is actually the gathering and areas aren't reused, I still enjoyed the game quite a bit, even though I was fighting most of the same baddies. But, um... Yeah, really enjoyed Yasha. Um, looking forward to starting up uh, Eskin Logi. Um, shame that Colin couldn't make podcasts. Yeah, I was just he, about to say, like, too bad he, Colin's not here because he would have Sean Logi. Yeah, he, yeah, he's um, he he's one of a few people that have told me that Eskin Logi or however you pronounce it is their uh, favorite Atelier game. So it like was Zach's favorite too. So. Well, just from uh, from an outsider's perspective, whenever we share like an anniversary of that game on our Twitter page or whatever, it usually gets a lot of you know enthusiastic uh, comments and things like that. So it seems to be kind of a high watermark for the series. It'll be interesting to see if going forward from here, how much uh, Ryza kind of what's the word has like staying power because uh, obviously it was really kind of people were enthusiastic about it when it came out yeah i feel like earlier in the now now that we're in a new year from its release i don't see a lot of people talking about it i'm not so. sure about that i think um before i start talking about katana kami i'm gonna just say this uh ryza i think part of the reason why we're not seeing as much talk about it right now is because it's quite frankly i don't think they printed enough copies of the game 
because mm -hmm. if you look around, like right after I finished Yesha and I knew, okay, I'm going to actually play more of the Atelier series. I was like, you know what? I should pick up Ryza now, like on Switch, because I really enjoyed having like Atelier on a handheld. So I looked around and like no place has the Switch version of Ryza in stock anymore. Like it's completely sold out. If you look for it, you'll find it going for above MSRP on eBay. And obviously it's the fastest selling Atelier game. But it makes me wonder if it's kind of being stifled by the amount of copies actually out there in the wild right now. And, and then you risk people like losing interest as newer games come out. If like if they would have grabbed it earlier in the year, but then finally couldn't. Yeah. So if if someone told me that Brian, you have to you have to play an Atelier game because your your job depends on it or something, uh, I'd probably pick Ryza. So I don't think I will, but maybe. Oh, it's non-zero chance. All right, so yeah. what do you think about uh, Katana Kami? I think you just grabbed it very recently. You've only had a couple days at it. Uh, Josh Torres just put up his uh, review for the site, and he had some uh, personal history with the Way of the Samurai series, of which Katana Kami is a spinoff of. But I think from your perspective, you're going to be comparing it to the game you were playing last week, Sheer in the Water, yeah. as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, it basically wears that inspiration on its sleeve. Like, one of the uh, pre-ordered DLC costumes is literally a Sure in the Wanderer costume, complete with a with a uh, copa to put on your shoulder. And uh, the gameplay is very, very reminiscent of a mystery dungeon game, just action RPG. Like, um, randomly generated dungeons has a whole deal where if you die in the dungeon, you lose everything that you had on your person. <clears throat> it's... Uh... That's interesting. I do think the combat isn't perfect. I do enjoy it, like, in the meat of it, but, like, especially once you get a bunch of enemies on screen at once, it kind of becomes a bit of a clusterfuck because of um, the lock-on isn't particularly great, and there's a bit of weight to your swings, which is usually fine, but <clears throat> if, it, let's say, you're in the middle of a combo and then you want to, like, start move like start like attacking someone else it's kind of clunky to do so because of the lock on and it's um i enjoy it but it's definite i can definitely see where he got um where he uh, came to the score that he did um right it's it's interesting and kind of cool to have these two different outlets to hear about the game because i've read about i've read josh's review and i was sort of like sort of interested in this game but after i read it not just purely because of the score obviously but because of the um specific criticisms that he had uh, I was like, I don't know if I'm really interested in this. It seems kind of dry. It doesn't seem like it's something that's up my alley. And then I get to hear you talk about it here. And some of those criticisms feel like they're the same. But then also, you seem generally a, little, a bit more enthusiastic about it. So, Well, yeah, definitely. Um, first off, I'd say that the uh, um, visuals are actually pretty good. Like, especially once you get into the meat of the game. Like, I mean, it's obviously a lower budget game, but I feel like it looks really nice especially in motion and uh, one thing it definitely helps is on pc it does actually support a high refresh rate like it was weird like uh when i before i picked it up like a bunch of people were saying oh it gets capped at 60 and i was like i wonder if it's just capping it at your monitor's refresh rate because sometimes that happens so i started it up and it's like oh yeah it is running at a full fat 144 hertz so that was oh, you nice. haven't been, have you been playing the pc version then i thought you were playing um another version no, I'm playing the PC version. Oh, okay. I was debating whether or not to get it on PC or Switch, and I actually had a Twitter poll for that because I couldn't yeah, it's, decide. It's performance versus portability, right? Yeah. So, so uh, 
and I do that every now and then. But yeah, I ended up going with the PC version. I'm glad I did because I do feel like, especially for an action RPG like that, the higher refresh rate and the uh, better visuals is ideal. Right. So, um, I and yeah, it's like totally a mystery dungeon game in like uh, aspects. Like even some of like the floor tiles are very very similar to some of the ones that you would see in Sheer and Wanderer. Like they're just themed like. Uh, way of the samurai i assume and like kind of blackier like so instead of a trip trap that you would find in sheer and wanderer you see sea cucumbers that if you step on them you you slip and you drop a few items <laughs> does it have does it have like those ambush rooms that mystery dungeon games have uh yeah that's cursed rooms cursed yeah rooms. you step well I'm, I'm thinking of like mystery dungeon games where you step into a room and then you realize there's like 10 enemies in it and then some mystery dungeon games, the music actually changed. It's like dun dun dun, and it's like, oh crap! It has something similar enemies. like that, where <laughs> it's like you get locked into the room, and you sh- and before you can get out, you have to kill a certain number of enemies. Yeah, and you get like swarmed and stuff. And uh, there are some interesting enemies. Like uh, later on in the dungeon, you have these uh, poverty gods that can take money from you. There's um, some enemies that can copy themselves and attack, like multiple are there any enemies that you throw your weapon into they eat it and then poop out a better stronger weapon no i, I remember there were some of those in shira and they're like take my sword and make it better <laughs> and yeah. it's just really weird you just kind of throw it to them and then they somehow improve it yeah anyway. but yeah reminds um, me of those uh isn't there a creature in breath of the wild that does that octorox Something uh, like that. One, one of those like Zelda games where you give or something. Uh, or an will take like a rusted sword and then like. Uh, oh, that's it. Yeah, you take like a one. rusted weapon and they'll unrust it. Yeah. And speaking of mystery dungeon, there is that uh, Pokemon one remake or remaster. So excited for it, man! Like, uh, I know I talked about this last week, but like, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon was my first like actual like unsurprisingly i feel like most people that know the term mystery dungeon in the west probably got started playing pokemon mystery dungeon yeah. now i think it wasn't until more recently that people realize that mystery dungeon mystery dungeon is such a weird like history i'm actually gonna pull up a page here just to make sure i don't uh misspeak here but like mystery dungeon like the actual spike chunts off series actually started as a spinoff of dragon quest because, like, the very first Mystery Dungeon Tornado's Journey or yes, something. Yes, right? it was a spinoff of Dragon Quest Four. So, like, the whole Mystery Dungeon, everything that's Mystery Dungeon started out with a Dragon Quest one. And then uh, uh, the first Mystery Dungeon game was called Mystery Dungeon, like, that's not a spinoff, was Shiren the Wanderer. So that's, like, it wasn't the original Mystery Dungeon game, but it was sort of, like, the first, I believe it was the first. The first not attached to another IP. Right. And then it sort of became its own IP called Siren the Wanderer. And then other Mystery Dungeon spinoffs like Pokemon, uh, Chocobo Dungeon, Chocobo's Dungeon, all yeah, all, uh, all I need a well. uh, It's just it's just a little bit weird how 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 the series came about. But yeah, Katanakami is just enough Mystery Dungeon for me to want to keep playing. I definitely think I probably wouldn't still be playing it if it didn't have so many obvious nods to you're in the wanderer though because it's not an amazing game by any stretch of the imagination it's just okay but i'm definitely enjoying it quite a bit more because i see those things in it that remind me of sure and it's like yeah i like this mm-hmm. kind of weird how that works out sometimes 
All right. Oh, uh, one thing I will say is the soundtrack for Katana Kami is actually really good. I think that uh, Josh even mentioned that in his review, but it really is yeah. a very strong soundtrack. Is it, is it like classic feudal era samurai sort of yeah. evoking yeah. soundtrack? Okay. Yeah, it does actually, the dungeon themes do closely remind me of some of the themes in Shiren the Wanderer on Vita. So, I mean, obviously similar settings, so it might just be that, but I do think that there might have been... I, we should, yeah, we I don't know. That. We should probably mention that this is the same developer. Yeah, Spike Chunk Soft. Soft, yeah. So it makes sense that there'd be a bunch of uh, common DNA. <laughs> yep. But yeah, that's what I've been playing this week. Uh, well, I have been playing a bit more like smaller games. Like I finally played Journey and I played through Tetris Effect. But yeah, people have talked about point, that. Will we, will, we, will we go through this section and not? And James will not have the opportunity to bring up Vita. When will that be? I'm just <laughs> well, kidding. Well, we have Utuar Mono coming out, so oh, never mind. Um, yeah, coming. Sell your games on Vita, so yeah. If you keep going through those, we'll be here a while. Vita, Vita means life. It has staying power. Into the topics of the week. Uh, the first one, we're going to loop back around to Adam, who had the chance to see Persona 5 Royal uh, from Atlas. Now, obviously, this is kind of a unique spot because Persona 5 Royal, in a lot of ways, is a known quantity because it's been out in Japan. But there are a few things that we were able to like learn inf new information about in terms of the Western release. So I'll just... Uh, you know, hand it over. You could talk about the trip that you had, what you saw, what your impression of the game was, um, yeah, things like that. So yeah, so Atlas West had a event in Los Angeles about a week ago, a little more than a week ago, uh, to to preview Persona Five Royal, and we got a chance to play off a little bit of the game. And they kind of had a variety. They had four different save points we could choose from, basically based on what you wanted to see. Like if you want to see this, do this save point. This to this, do this save point. Um, load up various files. Uh, I will admit, so like, first of all, Atlas is no stranger to re-releases at all. And so this is kind of like Persona 4 Golden only for Persona 5, where there's a couple of new additions throughout the game, but then... There's a new girl. There's there's a new semester, which I assume is kind of tacked on at the end, like roughly around where I assume after Haru joins at some point. Uh, which is relatively kind of like two thirds, three fourths of the way through is what I'm assuming it shows up. Um, and I don't know how the ending of the game is tweaked to incorporate new content. But what I'm getting at is, is that's the sort of stuff we couldn't see. Uh, and so I kind of have an idea based on what Atlas has said about what the new content is there, but we did, you don't actually get to see how that works until you play it for yourself and it's a long-term thing. So what we got to see are just like little bits and pieces of the new functions and components that are introduced and sprinkled throughout the game so like for example i got to see an early scene with the new character kasumi and it was just like a three minute little dialogue that sort of introduces who she is and her little her character personal i don't want to say like struggles at that point but like her personal life where she talks about being a gymnast and that she's preparing for uh a new competition and since she is considered uh a top tier athlete uh and kind of representing the school that she kind of ha she even doesn't have to do like certain school functions because they actually put more effort on her to do well in the gymnast competition. Um, and then I saw a scene where I there, there I got to see the the first dungeon of the game is Kamashita's Palace, which is related to An's storyline, and that is largely the same. But there are a few different uh, components that I noticed. One 
there are I saw some new enemies in the dungeon. There was the Ketchi uh, enemy. Ketchi looks when you when you spell it out, it looks like Kate Sith. But that's not yeah, the Final Fantasy character. Yep. <laughs> I wonder how many people are going to be confused. I, that, that person, that character, won't show up in the remake, but in like remake part two, like that's how you pronounce it, even though he was in the movies and whatnot. It's Ketchi. It's like it's like Irish or something. Anyway, um, uh, so there's a couple new enemies there's a new traversal mechanic in the dungeon where you use a hook shot or like a grappling hook to move around and i didn't get to see that too much but it's sort of you know what does that imply that there's different routes you can take maybe a couple of different rooms in the dungeons how you can move around uh and i, I assume like the new dungeons will probably have more of that but there there are places incorporated into the earlier dungeons as well and the boss fight itself it's about 90 percent of the same uh as the boss fight how it worked before but there is a new move that the boss can do. Uh, and I should probably mention that uh, Zach Reese, who used to be a writer for the site for more than a decade, actually now works He used to at, host his podcast, yeah. He used to host yeah. his podcast. He actually now works at Sega. Uh, obviously, he tries who not to... Alice is under. Us, yeah. Yeah. He, 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 we have a professional relationship now. Uh, so if we need help... He knows us, and we can get help for various things if we have like issues with uh, the news side of things. But uh, this, I just figured I should probably mention that uh, all through official else? channels. So, right. um, I guess this is kind of a weird spot because have any of the four of us played uh, the import of this? No, because any because anyone who's listening who has is going to be like more knowledgeable on this than we are. So it's a weird spot when you have this sort of. Uh, well, I actually said this in my preview. I, sh I, I, sh I actually said this in my preview. So we got to see like these. Oh, I should also mention uh, uh, there's, a, there's a few things I want to say. I need to like get untongue tied here or how I want to say it. So first, there's a, there's a new area in the game called Kiki Joji, where it, so in the game, you can explore various areas in Tokyo and there's various events you can do. And of course, in the normal persona calendar system, it's how you spend your time. You kind of have to decide what you want to work on, whether it's a a confidant link or improving a personal skill for joker or whatnot and so what i did was a billiards event in kikijoji which that actually raises your character's proficiency skill and it also it says it, they advertise it as raising the bond between characters i don't know exactly if that means anything or if that's just fluff because it's not like a confidant link but uh it's like just an it's event you can do to, to to spend time and it raises your character proficiency stat which of course those those personal stats come into play in various ways uh in game sequences and whatnot but even we had about an hour and an hour, or an hour and a half with the demo and that's it's a hard it's hard to really gain a picture of like how these new components actually work well in the in the larger picture of things in such a brief window of time so like I have no idea if the if the storyline surrounding Kasumi or the new content in the game is paced well or anything like that. And that's not the sort of thing you can really see in a preview. It's very hard to make a vertical slice. Yeah. Right. Uh, and obviously the game, there has been some criticism about the original game just being kind of longer than it needs to be anyway. And now it's going to be even longer. So that's I think that is a valid concern some people have. And, you know, it's one of those things you just kind of have to play it to see it, right? Um, there is one last thing I wanted to mention. I think there's a thieves guild in the game it's called the thieves guild which is sort of like an in-game achievement area where you it's got this new character named jose 
And it basically what it is is sort of like, it's like an achievement system, only it's built into the game where depending on what you do in battle, like if you ambush enemies certain times or knock so many enemies down or what you do in your character's like social life, like hitting so many home runs at the batting cage or and stats like that, if you achieve these achievements, you can unlock points. I think they're called P medals in this sort of thieves guild. And then you can use those medals to buy things like concept art. You can buy like a model viewer. You can buy OST tracks to listen to in this like music player. Uh, you can view like CG artwork or the anime style cutscenes so you can rewatch them here. And so it's just kind of like this in-game sort of content unlock system that wasn't in the original game. It's one of those things where some of the things you can do feel kind of tedious, like, oh, I got to do this 100 times in battle or defeat 100 enemies with your gun. And it's just, you know, kind of the boring, tedious type of achievement stuff. But I guess, you know, it's all optional anyway. And it's just there if, you, if you're the type of person who really loves the characters in the world and want to exhaust it as much as you possibly can. Here's another avenue to do that. I think it's so, always good think... for games to have some avenue for that. For those that really just want to, you know, they don't have the they don't have any inclination to jump to another game, or they just want to, you know, they want to exhaust it. That's a good way to put it. I, I do think that having that is more beneficial than it is harmful, even if you look at it and say certain parts of it are tedious. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think the more content for people who really, really like the game, to give them more content to latch onto, that's never a bad thing. Any further thoughts um, on uh, Persona 5? It's one of those things. So I, I, uh, uh, who has played Persona 5 here? Me and James? I have, yeah. Yeah, I played it. Okay, so uh, I, feel I like the game, but I'm, I, I don't love it. Uh, like, I, had, I do have a few issues with it, and I've always been SMT style of stuff from Atlas anyway, and I'm a big fan of Persona 2. I'm one of those Persona fans. Oh, yeah, and, but you're a hipster I, persona fan. No, I'm just kidding. Well, I actually played Persona 2 after I played 3 and 4, and it, it's one of those things like, okay, just a little bit of personal history if you care. I played Persona 3 first, which I think a lot of people did because it was sort of like a new system, a new style, and I never had an original PlayStation anyway, and I hated it. I hated it. It was just like, this is so a waste of time. It takes too long. It's I want to just I want to play, but the game's not letting me play and whatnot. And it, I, I eventually had to come back around to it around the time Persona 4 was releasing. I was like, okay, let me, maybe I just didn't get it and I'll try it again. And I played it again and I enjoyed it more. But then I played Persona 4 and like, I like the games. I kind of get them now, but they still never were, never really were like my thing. And then like Persona 5 was just more of the same. I'll probably will play Royal eventually, but it's just like, I don't know if I'm having more content is really what I'm looking for here, but maybe that's what a lot of people are looking for. So, I don't think it's an uncommon view that uh, Persona 5 was too long for its own good. So more content is definitely a negative for probably more people than it's a positive. Well, I mean, they're probably there. Maybe maybe those people are a little bit more vocal. But like, I don't want to. I don't want to poo poo on someone's favorite thing. And if this is just more of someone's favorite thing, it's good. I just, I that is the thing that I'm personally just kind of like cautious about for my own personal enjoyment of the game is like i hope this game doesn't just feel like a waste of time being so long and adding things that may not have necessarily needed to be added i should mention that atlas both west and japan has been very specifically trying to say that they actually made a comparison to marie and persona 4 golden who did maybe feel a bit superfluous and like an addendum that they are trying to incorporate kasumi and her story 
into the game and, and blend it in a way where it doesn't majorly affect the storyline and it's not going to be like some big twist on the storyline. Persona 4 Golden had that thing where it's like this component of the ending, I forget exactly like one of the gods' names or whatever you call it, is only explained by Marie's presence. Like Marie was that important all along. And it, it kind of yeah. leaves a bad taste in your mouth where now it just feels like, obviously I don't know because I haven't played the game, so maybe I shouldn't even be talking, but uh, Kasumi is, is intended to be more evenly loaded into the game. She's just another character with another story. It's just kind of on par with the rest. And someone like me who hasn't played five and who's interested in playing it at some point, going into Royal without that um, that foundation, right? Is it going to be obvious to me what's an addition and what's not? Ideally, you want to say no, right? So right. Uh, obviously, I can't be completely oblivious because you know I I contribute to this. You website. know that she's new, so. and we're having and we're having this podcast just now. So you're telling me what's new and what's not, at least to some extent. So I can never be I can never be completely like double blind, uh, but it is something where like I feel like as someone who really liked my personal history is that I've only played four golden. So I guess I'm a casual in that sense, but I really did like well, it. I think I played through it like three times. Uh, speaking yeah. of four golden, since we both started with Persona Four Golden. Um, I actually didn't, like, like, I knew that, what's her name, Marie, was it? Yeah. Yeah. I knew she was new, but if I hadn't been told that, I don't think I would have, like, made the connection playing Persona 4 Golden, because, and even then, I, like, looking back, it's obvious that she's pretty segmented from the rest of the story, but I don't think... I think people, when they play a game, unless they're outright told that like the new content is new, they might just not notice it. So like, especially with Persona 5 Royal, a bunch of people playing the game for the first time, they're probably just not going to even know that the uh, new girl is actually new. That's my so opinion. You think, I'm not sure. That, you, think, you think if Marie was pretty well implemented, and this is supposed to go even a step further to make it more... Uh, what's the word unobtrusive less obvious even keeled that this should really if it's an improvement at all it'll be it'll feel yeah coherent and good so what's well, actually kind of this actually what this actually kind of reminds me of is uh so i think just yesterday or two days ago it was shimigami tensei nocturne's birthday uh we do our birthday tweets on our website on our twitter feed 17th birthday and in japan we made a post about it and we had a couple of people saying, like, featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series. But it's actually kind of uh, ironic because that version of the game did not have Dante from the Devil May Cry series. <laughs> and it's one of those things that when that was, when that game was localized, things like Dante, some of the Kalpas, um, and the uh, True Demon ending. Like, I knew this when I played the game. But those some of those things were not in the original version. And some of those, and kind of to, on James's point here, it's not super obvious which ones are brand new. Like I, I know generally, like the true demon ending stuff is new, but I don't know like how much of it was existed before or not. So I just we're just talking and about it's, it's, and it's not like something that's unique to Atlas because we were just talking way on the other side of the world, Baldur's Gate, how the enhanced edition had those new characters, and are they obvious or not? That's another discussion because you've got. Yeah. Delay there, Technically, the but... uh, version of Atelier Asia I played is the plus version. Um, plus version. I couldn't tell you what was new or not. So, right. So it's kind of interesting that that's just kind of the world we live in now, where I feel like at some point any additions that you add 
that's you know a little bit redundant but any of those things that are you know addendums to the game are just you have to consider them as part of the base game because that's at it's for most people who weren't there in that i guess let me put it this way when a game comes out with a re-release and it has additions made to it that game is the one that people refer back to like when people are talking about persona 5 in 15 years I feel like 95% of it are, pe- are people are going to be talking about it as if Royal is that's that's what the that's the whole you know that's the whole like ethos of a definitive edition right, right? and um, Persona 5 as a non definitive edition only existed standalone for a short period of time relative to Persona 5 events you know within not too long a time does that make sense I think it does depend a little bit like for example uh like um Radiant Historia, perfect chronology. It has like new content in it, and similar to this discussion, there's some of the new content you probably wouldn't know is brand new. But I kind of feel like the original game made a splash, and that re-release for various reasons did not. That's, <laughs> so yeah, when people point. refer back to it, I'm not sure if they'll care too much about. There's kind of a I don't even remember. The, I don't remember even the new character's s- name. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm- also, I'm sure that Persona 5 Royal is going to do well, but I'm not actually sure if it's going to sell nearly as much as the original Persona yeah. 5 in the West. I feel like, like especially Golden... since um, it's like releasing like early 2020, where the PlayStation 5 is coming out at the end of this year. Like I, I don't know. I feel like most people, like even in 15, well, I'm not sure in 15 years because we we know that Atlas is going to port like a bunch of persona games to different platforms till the end of time. So it'll be interesting to see like what the uh, remembered version of persona five ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. But this is just, I think you're maybe getting at this a little bit too. And maybe this is just a feeling I have, but like persona four golden kind of felt like lightning in a bottle in a way where, that was back when Japanese RPGs on like the PS3, the Japanese developers were, were, were struggling a bit. They were having a hard time with HD development. Uh, there was not that many Japanese games, and some of them were like stuck you, on You, you kind of had like Lost Odyssey and everything else, yeah. and even then, that stuck on a console that wasn't conducive to JRPGs. You could say you had you had other games like Infinite Dis- Undiscovery and like Last Remnant, which were kind of like good for what they were, but the big hitters weren't coming at that point. And I kind of feel like Persona Four Golden just kind of released at the right time on a platform. And it was like a platform also starved for content. So it was like, hey, here's this game you can play on Vita. I know maybe James will argue that it wasn't starved for content, but like Vita kind of being the king of niche games, this well, is sort of like- Here's something I looked up. Cause I remember, I remember this being a headline like a while ago, but like NPD actually announced the top selling games for each platform for like, like somewhere in like 2018. And like Vita was included in that. So I looked up this list of the top selling Vita games and like number eight is Persona 4 Golden and that's not counting digital sales. So with mm-hmm. digital sales, it, it might be in the top five selling Vita games in the US. I'm but just curious, what, what were the like top three or so? Uh, Uncharted, Golden Abyss, Call of Ooh, Duty, Black Ops, oh, Classified, and Assassin's Creed 3 Liberation. And really? That's interesting. Wow. Well, it's probably oh. because Call of Duty was a pack and title and so was Assassin's Creed. And Uncharted was a launch title, so. But what I was getting at was, like, I think Persona 4 Golden kind of 
was like a lightning in the bottle kind of turned a lot of people onto the series like wow this stuff is cool and then of course like okay that was fun what's next and next is persona 5 and then i think that's why persona 5 was so successful not to mention persona 5 uh, released on two platforms in the right. west um but like i i sort of wonder like how much of that vague hype is around like how many people are going to rebuy royals um, so how you many think people the, just the, the through the through it? line going from golden to five was there and present and strong and clear, but the through line people revisiting five to play through the royal content is yeah. more murky. I, I like I, yeah. I I I highly doubt that five royal is going to sell as much five. Like I doubt more people are going to buy that than bought five because there's inevitably going to be some people who bought five and like yeah that was fine you know I don't need more. I mean I might be totally wrong, but. I just sort of wonder how successful it's going to be because it's not really in the same position that that Golden was in. Like yeah. Golden is very clearly more successful than 4. Uh well maybe 4 got a lot of back sales from Golden. Like I don't know if now I have to, now I'm wondering like if Persona 4 Golden maybe had an effect on sales of the original version of 4 uh for people who didn't have Vitas, but yeah. I just think this is just sort of my how I you know, I guess speculation in a way. Like I just sort of wonder how five is going to do royal. I mean, well, just speaking generally, yeah. I think if if you have the, are of the opinion, or we generally are the opinion that royal might not do as well as five, but in terms of pure numbers, I mean, it'll still do well. I just sort of wonder how. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're talking, we're we're arguing like eights and tens, like in terms of you know just general. Right. What's the uh, personally? What's the general? Like, I've got the uh, Phantom Thieves edition pre-ordered, but it's only really out <laughs> of hype. Like. I'm we've been talking about it now and I'm like that's 80 quid on a game like I did like I really did like Persona 5 I've got the art book and but I think I'm done like I'm done with it you know like I don't think I need the extra content I think I just want the steelbook and the mask <laughs> well man like Adam said we might be wrong but at least we're we're not being wishy-washy like maybe it will maybe it won't like all right we don't think it seems like we're generally thinking that it might not do as well but we're, we'll be glad to revisit and say it's just different wrong. circumstances than golden really is the main yeah. thing right that's that's the, the thing the, the situation's all different so you don't know how many parallels you can draw uh but as for someone like me who hasn't played five i look at royal and be like of course this is the one i want to eventually get uh right so I, there's a, there is a small i assume population of people that are in that boat where it's like i haven't had a chance to get to five yet and well comes here's the question edition. how many people that might be interested in playing persona five let's say okay P5R comes out and they're like, I want to play Persona 5. And it's like, well, I could play Persona 5 Royal for 60 bucks, but the original Persona 5 is only 20 bucks. It's like, I wonder if any people, mm. anyone out there would just be like, do I really need the new content? Or I feel like, I feel like most people just want more no matter what. Mm. I do think that there is a, there would be a non, you know, non-zero population of people who like, they can find the game for a really good deal and they think that's good enough. But I feel like most people in that boat, more than 50% of that population is going to be like, if I'm going to play through Persona 5, I'm going to wait through, I'm going to wait for a sale for Royal before getting five at a discount MSRP. Um, that's just my, my guess. That's probably the boat I'm in, I guess, is why I'm leaning that way. It's like, if I see in a year that Persona 5 Royal is on sale for 40 bucks, I'm, I'm going to get that before getting Persona 5 for 10. Does that make sense? Um, that's just my situation. But anyways, that comes out uh, at the end of next month. 
I don't know who on site is slated to be looking at it. I know you did obviously the preview. I think Cullen is. And Cullen is a huge, huge fan of the original, so he'll probably love uh, that. He, uh, if, you, if you follow Cullen on Twitter, he's been playing uh, Scramble, the import, yeah. uh, which I don't think has an official English title yet. But Well, it hasn't been officially announced yet. I think I think there there's some trademarks that have been like filed or something where yeah there's some speculation what the title is but nothing nothing official just all but confirmed or whatever I, I'm I'm just, uh, I'm just assuming Atlas West wants to release Royal first and then shortly after that they'll announce Scramble just timing right. yeah but but yeah he he will definitely give Royal a fair I, I, during this podcast I feel like I I'm, feel. I maybe have presented myself more negative on Persona 5 than I actually am I think it's good I just don't love it like some people do and I will probably play Royal because I just kind of want to know if I think this is an improvement or not well, well, yeah, also... you, well you want your opinion to be like substantiated you don't want to just yeah right rather than just what, what I is. sort of feel about what they've showed me rather than actually playing it but like but I'm you, actually had, but you playing... had a good trip to, to reel this in you had a good yeah. uh Right. But I'm I'm actually going to be playing uh, Trail of the Cold Steel that comes out like a week before it the the PC version of three. Um, that's a, that's actually another series that I like but don't love. And then I'm going to be probably playing uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake shortly after. So kind of Persona Five Royal is kind of squeezed in the spot here. Like I'll probably have to wait on you for a bit. Uh, to, right. I think a lot of people are going to be in that spot. We're all we're all going to have to make those hard decisions. But definitely okay feels like show. this. This year has been kind of like just like prodding along, and then it's like every like almost every game that people really want to play is coming out within like a two month span. It's just like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> who's getting who's getting Animal Crossing? Anyone here? Woohoo! Yeah, Woo-hoo. as we as I put George George wanted yesterday. us to cover Animal Crossing on our website. I kind of felt like I, that might be a I got vetoed. Well, uh, I think if you really wanted to, you can, we we can contact the powers that be and do something but we'll see uh don't, don't get my hopes up like that I, oh, I animal crossing is, no, <laughs> talking, no promises genres, animal crossing is sort of like its own genre it doesn't yeah. really fit into any other bucket i'm just reminded of that one meme where it's like anim- the reason why animal crossing is so successful is because it's escapism for millennials that will never own their own house yeah. wow yeah. wow <laughs> uh, someone that as someone who's been slowly looking at like houses and condos, I, I do feel that. Um, just, rather than getting your own house, Brian, just get Animal Crossing and build a house there. There you go. That's going to be better for my wallet. All right. So the next topic is a little bit more dour than talking about the upcoming Persona 5 Royal, but it's the fact that Dissidia Final Fantasy NT is quote unquote dead with no more updates planned for arcade or PS4 version. Now, not dead, like it's still going to be like the servers are online, but there's no more characters coming. There's no more uh, updates planned. And specifically, they voiced no plans for any sort of sequel. Now, I think for the four of us that we're all kind of in the same boat where we have different levels of experience with the PSP versions of the game, the original release of um, Duodecim. Yeah, what I want to say is, is that as a fan of both fighting games and a fan of Dissidia, I had no interest in NT. I didn't play Dissidia to be a fighting game. I played it for the -the over-the-top gameplay and the tons of content and more of the RPG aspect of it than the crossover elements. Yeah, it's like I. It's it's more of a party fighter, like in my mind, than like it's like a Smash Bros. Where yeah, it has the nuts and bolts of something you could consider a fighting game, but I feel like it's more driven for the fan service for the spectacle for the crossover element things like that 
But they I, didn't I might be in a go ahead special position here because I actually own NT uh, and I did play. Oh, it a okay. Bit. I, I'm bad. I'm yeah, bad. I, for, actually, uh, I don't know if I didn't. Mention, assuming. But, so, yeah, what, I, what are your opinions on NT being potentially uh, the last Asidia game? No more updates. No more sequels. A big shame. Really big shame. But I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, I remember when NT released. Something else big was released alongside it. I can't it was remember what. Right around, uh, I think. Uh, Dragon Ball Fighters. Yeah. Ah, yeah, it was. Dragon Ball Fighters and Monster Hunter World were released then. Yep. Um so I did I got it on a whim because I like I like getting stuff from my collection. Played it a little bit, uh, probably put about five or six hours in, which isn't enough to call myself a fan, but it was right. okay. Uh well, I didn't really I feel like I'm obligated it. to state this. The quote uh from the director is that we um we don't want to make false anticipations, so we want to make it clear that right now there are no plans for the city of Final Fantasy two at all. And of course, you know, you could say, Well, there are never no plans until there are plans. So it's not like yeah. it's doors shut and locked and thrown away the key, but it's just right now they're they're being kind of open about saying that there's nothing on the table at this moment. On one hand, I do think it's uh interesting that they actually shut the door on that because you don't see that very often where yeah. where a publisher will no, actually normally they're like, like eh, maybe i don't want to lock myself yeah out of the usually they're kind of vague like we we don't want to shut any doors and there's always a possibility um you know that we don't who knows what will happen type of thing like they, they always because no one knows the future so they always you almost always say like leave the door things correct. might happen I think in this case, people they they made the assumption that people would assume that oh, the reason why they're not doing updates for Dissidia and T anymore is because they're now working on the next game, and they're like, no, they just wanted to basically preempt people and say like, no, we are shutting down Dissidia for updates, but we're not doing a sequel. They they basically wanted to preempt that assumption. <laughs> Didn't they recently release Arden? As DLC from Final Fantasy mm -hmm. I think he ended ago. up being the last one. But in general, oh. like when we would cover the game, it feels like the uh, the character announcements, specifically, I think like Yuna and Tifa, I believe, would be like super well They're received because they get their yeah they get their um, little like intro animation or whatever. And they also added like um, Vayne and some other like kind of off the wall type characters like minor not minor antagonists but like not not protagonists of their game or whatever and those would always get like some like level of engagement in terms of sharing it on twitter or whatever but it never really seemed to like manifest into any like real i think people just wanted to see what game, i think a lot of people just wanted to see what characters were included and want to see like new high definition models especially for older characters right. but then like they didn't most people i feel like besides you know a dedicated fan base didn't actually play the game and actually like experience the content. They just wanted to like, oh, cool, now Tifa's in this game, yeah. uh, and that was it. They it's didn't a shame actually play. <laughs> so, I think it's always sad when uh, I should probably gets we, killed. We should probably mention that there is one more update for March. So when I think our editor who wrote it said like no more updates, and what they meant was there's one last update in March and it's like a couple of costumes or something and that's it. Like, well, no, actually it says in our, uh, basically they do promise that they work on, uh, minor updates if they found balance breaking issues, well, content update. Yeah. Uh, but there's no content update is the idea. There's no new arenas, new characters, new whatever. So I guess dead is kind of being overly dramatic. Yeah. But it's still, you, you heard, you heard the quote where they said, there is no plans for anything beyond this. We're just going to keep the servers online for now. We'll balance for now if there's game-breaking stuff. But I, I really feel like I should say as, say as far this. as it so, goes. 
the Emperor and the Cloud of Darkness are getting new appearances on March 5th. That's like the last content update. All like right. a new appearance. So, uh, so Dissidia will be dead on March 6th. Well, and they did. They did try like a free-to-play version of the game. Like I think it's PC. like you get like six six characters or something. But it, it was really confusing about how it worked because it's like it's a different version of the game. I think the player pool is different. Like you play this free-to-play version, and then you like decide at that point, you know, hypothetically that oh, I I really jive with this. I want to get the pay-to-play version. But as far from everything that I've heard, there was just never really a strong population for playing the game online on either version of the game, free or not. Uh, I had a lot of trouble funding games, no matter when I right. played. I'm glad someone's here to actually substantiate that rather than just... Yeah, that's true. Say. Completely true. All right. Um, and then, obviously, people are going to say that the three-on-three design is a bit weird, but doesn't Dragon Ball Z Fighters have something similar where you have, like, two assist characters? Or no, you actually pick three yeah. fighters. So mm-hmm. I don't know if three on three specifically is like that. That was that was the problem. That's the key issue. I feel like it might be more broad than that, but I don't. Know I feel like because again, I haven't played. Boiling it down, it feels like the main issue. It had no real like RPG content. It was all fighting. I mean, some character building, but no like interactions between characters or sto- or its own storyline really. The net code, like finding on matches online, seemed to be like a struggle. It never really came over, and just those those seem like to be the primary reasons why it just didn't really take off. My experience, just so people think, like I did play the original Dissidia, like for PSP, the first one, um, and I'm probably I'm probably one of several who like I never really played it, or I, I almost never really thought of it as a multiplayer game. Uh, I just kind of play through like the different storylines and you know a lot of it's like really uh, contrived like these are right. this is why these two characters are teaming up against these two characters are teaming up but to be honest with the for a crossover game it's going to be contrived so that doesn't really like that doesn't dampen my opinion at all but then like when Decidia NT it was never marketed as having that it was it was like marketed as this like hardcore not hardcore but this very this serious multiplayer skill-based game and i'm like oh, that's not what i want so that's the reason i avoided it uh and i assume like they never really gave the impression that that wasn't that wasn't true so i i never really gave it a chance and i feel like other people are in the same boat all right i guess we don't have any other opinions on nt i do hope that we see some sort of spiritual successor someday a crossover maybe like a crossover rpg rather than a fighting game but i don't know because uh, obviously, I think a lot of people do still like the idea of seeing. The yeah, Final conceptually, I, just, I think people. Yeah, like yeah, it. that's a good way to put it. It's just that this this execution was poor, and it's sad, and it, like like George said, a shame, which kind of just summarizes it in one word: that we're not going to have that anymore, at least for the foreseeable future. You know what would be a good sort of crossover idea, and I think it's going to be obvious what I'm going to say, but imagine Kingdom Hearts crossing over Final <laughs> Fantasy again. Well, we finally saw the, Smash. Yeah, we finally saw the uh, Final Fantasy characters make a very brief appearance in the DLC. It'd be it would be cool to see some of that be more prevalent prevalent in whatever comes in the future. It also sort of reminds me how um, they added Sora to at least one of the versions of World of Final Fantasy. Um, yeah, they did. But, it was, but it was a temporary thing. He was not voiced at all in any language. I think. And then they then they removed him, and now you cannot get him. <laughs> yeah, you can only get him if you buy like 
I actually got him because I purchased the Vita version and it still had like the code yeah. to redeem for oh. him. <laughs> so I'm not sure if he's just non the new versions or what's up with that, but I have him. I still need to play that game. I, I played the PC version when it when Maximo released and it did not have him. So and I don't think he was ever available for that version. <laughs> But to close this out, I think we want more Final Fantasy crossovers. And if it's not the city, I hope it manifests in some other form because those are cool to see and they're interesting and they kind of can implement ideas that they couldn't in a, you know, a mainline series or something like that. All right. Uh, next on our topics is something that's going to be revealed within a week from now at PAX East. So obviously there's been news about companies that are no longer participating in PAX East from Sony to uh, a few others. Yeah, Square Enix in terms of Final Fantasy XIV. That's right. That's the other one I was thinking of. But one that is still slated to be shown is the first gameplay footage for Baldur's Gate 3, which is interesting because we've talked about this series a few times uh, in the what we've been playing section of this game. Yeah, the reason why I'm playing it is because this game, the original is because of this game coming out. Right. So uh, to kind of wrap up what we've seen so far, they, re- they revealed this in, at E3 for PC and Stadia, of all things with that cinematic trailer showing a guy turning into a mind flare. And that's pretty much all we've seen. So people don't know, like, is it going to look similar to... So the developer is Larian, who is best known for their uh, Divinity, specifically the original Sin game. So is it going to look the same to that? Is it going to look different? Basically, between people who have a vision of what Baldur's Gate looks like in their mind's eye, is this going to look like that? Or is it going to look like a Baldur's Gate theme mod to Divinity, you know, like, but basically what, what sort of, how, what, how does it present itself? What sort of combat is it going to have? Is it going to be turn-based? Is it going to be real-time? Is it going to be something different? So I think like, it's basically, this is the first, yeah, it was announced with the cinematic trailer, but this is the first, like, where we actually get to feel how the game might actually play. Right. So, uh, I think this is one of the, I'm biased, but this is one of the bigger announcements for PAX East, I feel, because, uh, I don't know. This game is a long dormant series. It's kind of we're at that point in time where this sort of the style of Western RPG has had a resurgence. That resurgence has kind of come and gone. We're no longer in the slope up. We're kind of in the new paradigm where we're seeing these games get released uh, at a regular cadence from small and now middle to big size studios. And so we talked about think... we talked last week about like gameplay styles like real time or turn based. So Baldur's Gate being the original games being real time with pause. And Divinity being turn-based, being Larian's style, it's like what will this game be like? You know, is yeah, it going to just feel I like, thing thing feel like Divinity played, with the Baldur's Gate skin? The, yeah, I haven't played the older Divinity games like Beyond Divinity right. or Divine Divinity. And then um, obviously a lot of games nowadays will have both. Well, not, I won't say a lot, but Pillars of Eternity, Two Deathfire did, and the new Pathfinder does. So it's not it's not unheard of to have both. So. I'm eager to see this. I don't think there's really a whole lot more to say on it. Uh, uh, I feel they, like Hasbro, Hasbro, who is the uh, like the parent Wizards company, of, Wizards uh, of the Coast, of the which Coast. owns D and D, is under Hasbro and That's Magic. They yeah. announced. I, I don't know if they kind of meant to announce this, but they did announce, and it's not super surprising during their financials recently that Baldur's Gate Three will supposedly have an early access launch, and. That's not too unexpected because both Divinity games, or I think both, at least Divinity Original Sin 2 had an early access launch as well, where they, you know, they released the game maybe shortly before it's it's fully ready to get feedback while they're polishing. So that's something 
Larian has done before. And it sounds like Baldur's Gate 3 is going to be doing the same thing. Um, we also talked before briefly how they mentioned that there are like seven D&D style games in development. Um, I don't know if they're all RPGs, but two of them being Baldur's Gate 3 and that Dungeons and Dragons uh, Dark Alliance. That <laughs> Which really used to be under trailer. Gate. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was so. the trailer. And they have so, also yeah, released more um, some uh, like prequel tabletop games that supposedly tie into this. But based on my um, uh, interview with uh, Sven, I can't pronounce his name, uh, CEO of Larian, uh, he basically makes it clear that Baldur's Gate 3 will be accessible to people new to the genre, or not genre, series at least, uh, because obviously the other games are... They're on the consoles now. They released late last year for PS4, Switch, and Xbox. So they're there and they're available. But this is this is basically kind of a new jumping in point. New developer, new time period. Uh, maybe new gameplay style. We'll see. But I'm eager to see this because the last style of game like this that I played was Kingmaker. So it's been about a year. Um, and I think it's one of the highlights of the show. And I'm interested to see, like, I guess at this point next week, we'll be talking about it. So we'll see how that I've... plays out. I've literally never played either of the Baldur's Gates games, but the reveal trailer for the new one coming up was incredible. Yeah, like, you know, the one where uh, that guy's transfer. That was cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, and I, I did ask like, is this because Baldur's Gate is interesting because at its surface, it's kind of had this really like grim, dark Western fantasy, medieval, you know, dreary sort of mindset, and that's what that trailer um, kind of evokes because you know it's this horrible thing that's happening to this person turning into this thing that you know paralyzes you and sucks your brains out through your nostrils or whatever uh but if you've played the original Baldur's gate there is a lot of whimsy there's a lot of silly dialogue there's silly stuff that happens there's this character named like nuber who just completely bugs your character just says hey hey what's up hey like these ga these games have that sort of whimsy to them and obviously so do the divinity games especially original sin one there's lots of like you like teleport into like someone's bathroom with the teleport pyramids so <laughs> i think that if any studio can balance those two like aesthetics both a dreary high western fantasy with whimsy i think larian can because this is the studio that has like a plunger dart in their logo like they're, they're going to be silly when it when it when they are allowed to be so i do hope that there that that is somewhat present even if overtly this game is supposed to kind of have that sort of dreary atmosphere, but yeah, playing the original uh, game, you're you're absolutely right. It's much, it's much sillier than I expected it to be in places. Yeah, so I do hope that that maintains, and I don't think we have really any really reason to doubt that based on Larian's track record. All right, uh, one other thing that was announced for Western RPG fans in the last week was that gothic remake that we saw that weird playable teaser late last year from THQ Nordique um, is basically they're going through with it. Uh, that playable teaser was only playable for a very short time and I never had a chance to do it. But from all from all like points that I heard that it wasn't very good, it wasn't very fun, it wasn't very yeah. playable. I never I didn't hear outside of the general idea about how swell a gothic remake would be. I didn't hear much positive about this specific envisioning of it. But here we are today where THQ Nordique has announced that they're moving ahead with it, uh, that it won't release this year. Um, Gothic was originally uh, developed by 
Piranha Bytes, who most recently yeah. made Elex, which is the one, which is my experience with that studio. I've played Elex. I haven't played the original Gothic. I thought Elex had a lot of cool things going for it. Uh, but that's kind of off the table for this talk. I, I'm, also, I'm almost kind of bummed that like this Gothic remake isn't in the hands of the original studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. but that's because Piranha Bytes is supposedly working on Elex 2 or another or some other projects which we should hear about this year. Yeah, they, uh, they said that they're going to announce their game this year and it seems like all signs are pointing it to being Elex 2. So that's what that's what Piranha Bytes is working on. This remake, so Piranha Bytes was purchased by THQ Nordic and then this game is also being made by THQ Nordic but it's actually being made by a newly established studio in Spain. So it's there really is no track record to speak of it's a new studio and we'll see i so guess i i am the sort of person that like you, you hear kind of the semi-endearing term Eurojank, and i'm the sort of person where i haven't had a lot of experience with that but i have played greedfall i have played elex and yeah i think from a surface level these games are kind of easy to point out the blemishes in terms of animations or in terms of like production values and you, you can kind of look at sort of these things in a vacuum. And you see it even like with um, North American studios, too. You look at people who have kind of gleefully shared all those like Bioware, Mass Andromeda stuff where the animations were complete or were poorly implemented. And I think there's that general mindset where you see a five, ten second GIF of something that doesn't look that great. And then you kind of allow that to color your perception about this is how that RPG feels to play. And I don't really think that's true. And I feel with I feel I feel that with both Greedfall. And I felt it with like Mass, Mass Effect Andromeda, um, where I kind of enjoy that these games really, you, you kind of run that risk, I feel like, in some Western RPGs where they get streamlined down to a point where it almost feels like everything is handed to you without you having to engage with the product in a fashion that I no longer enjoy, if that makes sense. Where when I was playing Elex, and that's I keep going back to that because that's my experience with the Piranha Bytes game, uh, which is you know kind of secondhandly attached to this, is that it's a sort of game where you really have to make decisions in terms of how you how you want to build your character, how you want to like manage your resources. Some resources are like short short term resources, like your weapon and your armor and your potions, and some of them are like long term resources, uh, whether it's like um, your ability to traverse the map the uh your your faction reputation with certain people where certain people will attack you on site if you don't you know act in a way conducive to their uh worldview and that that's and when i hear about gothic one game that came out last year that i did also enjoy that i've heard compared to gothic was outward which mm-hmm. did announce a dlc this last week or two but i didn't put it on the podcast because i don't think we have a lot else to go on that but i, I felt the really same sort that. of thing there because Outward is also quote unquote Euro jank, even though it's made in Canada. Uh, so it's it's one of those things where it's like a nebulous opinion where people will have their it's own kind of, will draw it's their kind lines of funny because places. Some people will use Euro jank like disparagingly. Like, I don't care about that game. It's Euro jank. But then, then some people like are actually like endeared by it. Like oh man, I love Euro jank. And I think broadly, it's like these studios that have high ambitions for these fantasy worlds that they're creating. But they, they don't have like the same manpower budget at some place, I don't know, like CD Projekt has where they can d- work on a game for seven years and 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 push it out like a super polished title. Um, so and whether or not that ambition can shine through regardless of, you know, so yeah, you kind of have to like see the ambition 
of some of these developers behind some of you know slightly unpolished presentation or animations or well, or well not to kick it while it's down but when i think of like if if a game like greedfall is or any of these like pranobites or other you know european developed western rpgs if they're kind of the pinnacle of high ambition doing the best they can with the resources they have to achieve that then I think on the other hand, what you risk by not going far enough in that direction is a game like Anthem. Like you hear these like stories, um, whether it's shared by like Jason Schreier or Kotaku or other um, outlets about how as part of the feedback to Mass, Andromeda, Mass Effect Andromeda's, you know, presentation issues, they wanted to make a game that was like unjiffable. You could not make fun of it in terms of how it looked or how it felt or how it played in terms of, you know, presentation. And then you end up with this like shallow experience that has no staying power. So I think that's what that's the that's the risk you run if you're so afraid of having your ambition outpace your capability. So that's mm-hmm. kind of why I do think that playing these Eurojank titles, which I use endearingly, um, I'm not calling myself an expert, but I have played Outward, Elex, and Greedfall, so I have had a moderate amount of experience with this, and I do hear high praise for the original Gothic. But then you run into the risk where it was made in the early 2000s. So not only do you have that design sensibility to adjust to, but just the just the age to adjust to. So the the idea of having a remake kind of, to go to is is uh, enticing to me. It's also kind of interesting. Like sometimes you, sometimes there's like certain audiences for these games that feel like they're as it's well. What I'm what I'm getting at is like Outward recently they have sold 600,000 copies, and it's a pretty niche feeling game. Like I, I feel like I haven't really seen that many people talk about it, but 600,000 copies, that's more than a lot of like, like niche Japanese RPGs. And so like there are audiences for these sorts of games, these sorts of Western fantasy, lower budget, not super high ambition games. I mean, they're not selling well, millions. Awesome parallels. Code Bane recently announced that they sold a million copies. So they're, you know, X percent better than, uh, outward but i feel like code bane it doesn't it feels like it should be more than doubling it but you know that's just that's just you know that that's yeah that's just difference in audience difference in where you'll see it you could argue that some of these games are going to be more pc centric so you might see them more on like steam forums or things like that and while other ones you might see more on uh you know twitter and other forums reddit but uh to reel this back in i'm excited for gothic even though i've never played it just because i think i have in the last few years kind of um acclimated to that style of rpg mm-hmm. uh, and i think you've recently you've played uh like kingdom come deliverance which is obviously a first person game so it's a bit different but i still think it has some of those high ambition low presentation yeah sensibility to it so uh i, I mean you're gonna see it but it's like i said it's not gonna be this year so it's just kind of like this is confirmation that yes they're going through with it and not much more than that maybe we'll see more at some of the summer e3 gamescom stuff but i wouldn't be surprised if we don't it, it seems like one of those things where a lot of people who played the demo or the beta or whatever they called it the teaser weren't super happy with it but they wanted them to go ahead with the remake anyway that's what it seems like well <laughs> the thing if is people... if the game if the game is if the game is two plus years out and then, right. then again you run to that vertical slice like they they, they probably knew that this was going to be a rough presentation a rough 
you know, introduction, but they still felt that having that feedback early on was useful to them. So they must have seen enough positive feedback that they decided we know kind of what our trajectory is and we know we can hit this. So let's go ahead and do it. And I'm glad that they did because this is a series I've been interested in. Mm -hmm. All right. Our last two topics are a little more um, like limited in scope, but I do think that they're kind of interesting in terms of the broader conversations around them. The first one is, is that Witcher 3 Wild Hunt for Switch, which released late last year, is adding cross-save support with the PC version. So obviously that's, that's the news in of itself and that um, as long as you don't have any mods or whatever that uh, conflict with the save files, you can basically follow up on your Steam save on your handheld device, which you right now you could have done that through like some sort of streaming setup where you stream your PC game to your like NVIDIA device or something like that. But now here's like you buy a second version of the game and you have the cross save functionality between the two of them. So um, go ahead. this is interesting for me for a few reasons. One, I actually still need to play Witcher 3. I have the PC version on uh, GOG. And um, so for one thing, this actually supports cross-save with GOG Galaxy as well. Uh, that's a good yeah. point. That's a good point. Um, two, it makes me wonder, okay, will Divinity Original Sin 2 get GOG Galaxy save support? Because Well, we should mention that Yeah. CD Projekt is also GOG. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, because... I also need to keep playing in the original Sun too. But um, yeah, I think I actually wasn't super interested in picking this up on Switch. But now that it has cross-save support, I think I might pick it up like once it's on sale. Because I do think if I had the ability to play like between the Switch and like my PC, I might actually get around to, to finishing it. <laughs> Yeah, that and for totally some for sense. some people they might prefer a streaming solution or something like that. But for some people who have like a Switch and a PC anyways, and they don't want to deal with something that's dependent on their network, this feels like there's a. I feel I could I can kind of envision where that population of people sits. We're like, I have a Switch, you know, I can't always be at my PC, but I haven't finished. Well, like three, for example, I like, to be, I like to be able to play in both places. I, I have a bus mm -hmm. ride to my work or whatever, and here I, I have go. not played. I have not played Witcher three yet either. And what? I, I haven't played the original version. George, are you, you're with me, right? You've played it? Yeah, it's such a good... Oh, all right. Like, well, oh let, let, let me say this. Let me say this. I'm like two-thirds of the way through the first Witcher, and I want to finish that in Witcher right. 2 before I finally yeah, get back fair. to Witcher 3. I can get that. And, what, and honestly, that let, me just, let me just say here, for like hardcore RPG fans, I feel like they might have more to... Like, I've played a bit of Witcher 2, and I've played a bit of Witcher 3. My impression I get is is that from an RPG perspective, like especially older RPG perspective, I think Witcher 1 is more interesting than Witcher 2 and 3. I could see why you'd say that. Witcher 3 is quite is a bit more streamlined. But that, yeah. that's yeah. it. I didn't play either of the older games. I just jumped straight yeah. in the third one, fell in love with it retroactively, like looked at the series after that. Yeah. Um, Did you play but one I can't believe you two haven't played The Witcher 3. <laughs> Look, one of what's really sad, I pre-ordered the PC version of Witcher 3, like, physical copy, and it's sitting on my shelf right now. I'm pointing at it. Obviously, you guys can't see it. But it's like... <laughs> it's like <laughs> we need to stream these? No, but it's just like, I, I know I need to get to playing it, but it's like my backlog. Like, as yeah, I was saying so earlier, like, games. until you're, like, I started playing it in 2016, and I finally just got around to playing it. Like, I remember, like... I remember when I finally got around to playing The World Ends With You, it was like literally 10 years after I bought it or something like that. Yeah. I look forward to the uh, Tetracast episode in early 2022, hearing James' thoughts 
on The Witcher 3. Yeah. But all I was going to say was, you know, I could totally see myself playing Witcher 3 on my PC. And then, like, if I go on this trip to this Persona event, uh, you know, and you, you need something to do on the plane, just like, hey, I'm going to just load up my Witcher play through that a little bit. Um, you know, obviously, performance doesn't matter as much when you're just playing it like as a travel game. And you just want to make some progress and then come back after your trip and you can continue on your PC. It's like a really cool idea. Well, you, you ain't going to stream from your PC to your, to your airplane. So, right. Uh, yeah. But uh, I, the reason why I put this on here is because it just kind of two, two small like subtopics is one. I have some people ask like, well, where's the, where's the cross save support with the Xbox and PlayStation versions? And I, I don't think we can really answer that without knowing the, you know, the logistics of the deals on the platform holders behind that. Uh, that any, anything we say would kind of be somewhat speculative. So I don't, it's, I do I, understand where they're coming from, but I don't think it's I, anything on the platform holders end because you have to understand destiny two is cross save between all platforms. Now. I think the switch version is more like, there's more reason to do cross save there because of the portability aspect where like now you can play it on the go. Where so Xbox you're saying maybe, maybe, the, maybe the developer uh, thought that if people were going to utilize a cross-save function, this is yeah, like doing it with. I don't think many people, I, I think it'd be a much smaller set of people who would like, I don't want to play this on my PC. I want to play this on my, on my also stationary platform in my house, my PS4, even though my PC is probably well, in the what same. About, what about like PS4 to Switch though, for the same reason you stated? They don't oh, have that's what you meant. Oh, okay. Well, by mm. both things, I guess. I do feel like that would be non-zero, and but I do feel yeah, like that's this, also true. this news, yeah, this news story in a vacuum is kind of limited. Cross save on a single game, but I just feel like it's just another like notch in this platform agnostic future to kind of to poetically word it. It's just I feel like this is this is going to come to a point where these sorts of news stories are going to be more and more common until the point where maybe eventually it's not even newsworthy. That there's that there's that game will have cross save support. I feel like that's I mean, kind I think, of almost an ideal. Like we need to take a second to appreciate like how the hell they managed to get The Witcher Three on on Switch. Like it still doesn't right. feel real. Yeah, just that that's manageable. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the developer name. Shoot, that that developer who actually did Witcher Three on Switch recently got purchased by THQ Nordic. I yeah, think that's what I was just gonna say. Wasn't it Saber Interactive or something? So, yeah, Saber Interactive, Saber. which has more employees and i actually thought like they're pretty fair they're they're fairly sizable but yeah they 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 did the witcher 3 on switch and a few other switch ports and they recently became like the fifth major like branch of of embracer group which embracer group is the thq nordic and deep yeah. silver parent company because, that's because yeah the parent company like the parent company and one that yeah yeah the parent company was called like thq nordic it used GMPH to be like thq nordic was... There used to be I like the parent the company place, was called yeah. THQ Nordic, and then like the publisher was also called THQ Nordic, and it was a little bit confusing. So they they renamed the parent company Embracer Group, and now THQ Nordic is the publisher underneath Embracer Group, and so is Deep Silver is another publisher, and so is Saber Interactive, and there's a couple others. They have like a bunch of studios now. They're they just keep growing because they have a well. Ton of the, 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 there's like an ongoing joke that like when. They'll they'll be acquiring another company. And it's like how do they keep getting away with it? Or they've got. Oh, like, it's actually kind of. We were talking about gothic earlier. We were talking about yeah, gothic earlier, and like the the original gothic game was Piranha Bytes, developed 
and published by the original THQ. And then like Piranha Bytes, I'm trying to remember, actually, let me look this up here. Um, one second. So like the original Gothic game was a THQ game. And then the new, the like Gothic 2 and Gothic 3, they ended up being published by different companies like uh, Joe Wood Productions, which doesn't even exist anymore, I think. And then now Piranha Bytes got repurchased by, by the new THQ and uh, <laughs> is being developed by THQ. It's just kind of this weird full circle thing. And I do feel like I'm obligated to mention that this update for Switch does add like some graphics options, which is crazy because it goes back to George's point that the fact that they can even offer you uh, sliders for bloom, sharpening, depth of field, anti-aliasing. And I do remember when the game first came out, I don't remember the specifics, but it didn't have like any sort of rendering anti-aliasing. It was only post-processing anti-aliasing, like FXAA. And people were like hacking their systems to like disable or enable certain things. And they found like, hey, this actually looks better. So it feels like they kind of built from that and said, all right, now you have some options in your anti-aliasing and your water quality and your chromatic aberration. The fact that they're offering these sorts of things on a console game at all, let alone a Switch version, is just crazy. Yeah, um, what I what I'll say is I definitely have a, are of the impression that for handhelds, resolution doesn't matter as much. Like, right. Too, like is an exception. Like, but I think that's not even necessarily because of the resolution, but more because of the horrible post processing, like sharpening filter that's on it that has this. It looks like you're playing. It, it like who like Adam? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, did you ever play Xenoblade and uh, Xenoblade like, and handheld was not great. <laughs> yeah, like, but you know what I mean. Like the sharpening filter. It's not like even necessarily the resolution, but it's like it's over sharpened and it's yeah. like it just does not look good. But um, hopefully, uh, Xenoblade Definitive Edition is a lot better in that regard. Hopefully, but um, yeah, I usually I, play Switch games in console mode though. Well, I have a switch uh, light, so... Well, obviously, everyone's going to have their own opinion about, like, what settings are, you know, ideal to the way they play, the lighting they're under, whether they're handheld or console. Like, for instance... At least it gives you the option. Yeah, yeah, just having those options is just great because everyone can tailor their experience. Like, I know some people kind of blanket statement, oh, FXAA just softens the picture and it looks terrible. But I do think there are some cases where FXAA actually does a good job doing what it's designed to do. Like, for instance, if you're downsampling a game but it just looks really sharp. And then having the softening effect of the FXAA post-processing doesn't look very, it looks good, I think, in my opinion. But I think FXAA kind of a... looks better at uh, higher resolutions. Like when I was playing right. at 1080p, I wouldn't usually use FXAA, but at 1440p, I feel like you don't see the blur as much, but it does get rid of the jaggies. So it's sometimes right. worth and, going for it. And yeah, and this, I just bring up that specific example because now you're not stuck with whatever anti-aliasing they decide on for you you can have i don't obviously haven't booted up a switch version of witcher to see exactly what they um entail but now you've got you know you can play with it whether you're playing a handheld console and do it <clears> and hopefully that's just again if if having the cross save is just another notch heading towards this you know platform agnostic future hopefully these graphic options also is something that we'll be seeing going forward as we get into a new console generation about having you know, we'll have all this cross-save uh, or cross-platform capability or full backwards cap capability in terms of Xbox that these sorts of things become implemented so that we'll have, it'll just be kind of more more in line with the cross-save, cross-platform, platform agnostic future that we're heading towards. So that's, that's why I thought that this was kind of an interesting little uh, 
seemingly small, but actually kind of, you know, a broader scope update to this one specific example of an RPG that two of you still need to play. And lastly for this week is another update uh, on the PC side for some games that were released over the last decade. Uh, we're looking at the PC versions of East Oath and Felgana and East uh, Memories of Celseta, which have been updated with English and Japanese voices respectively. So uh, I don't know if Adam or James is the best to speak about these specifically, um, about well, exactly what these updates are and why it's interesting. Well, basically when, so Falcom has been, for talking about Celseta first, Falcom has been releasing some of their earlier titles on PS4, that both East, they recently released, uh, did East 7 get released on PS4? Uh, no, it didn't. So just Celseta. Okay. But they released Celseta on PS4 last year in Japan, and then Exceed basically is localizing that version. It previously released on Vita and also on PC. Now, Celseta had... Celseta is not fully voiced, but it has a couple of voice lines. And when the Vita version released, it was just English voices. And then the PC version released, it was just the same English voices. But basically, with the re-release coming out, they took the opportunity, like, okay, now we can go ahead and add the Japanese voice track for people who would want that. Yeah, and from then, what I understand, they... uh, with uh, Xseed, like, they had some issues with the Japanese voice side on their end, and then, like, finally, with uh, Cold Steel 1 and 2 on PS4, they managed to get, like, Falcom to deal with that, so they were able to start getting the Japanese I, I, voices. I feel like, I feel like, this is kind of speculation, but I feel like the fact that Xseed is actually a marvelous company, and they're working with Falcom, was probably the issue there, but that's more speculation. But basically, they've gotten over whatever hurdle they need to, to license Japanese voices, so they kind of figure, hey, we'll go ahead and add them, but we don't want to make them. We don't want to make them PS4 exclusive, so we'll go ahead and add them to the PC version as well. So we already knew that was happening, and they added them just last week. But maybe, perhaps more interestingly, because it wasn't maybe as expected. So let me just, I guess, set this up. Um, East. The Oath and Falgana originally released for PC in Japan in 2005, and that version does not have voices. And then they re-released that game on PSP in like 2010-ish, and that version had voices. It was kind of like a remaster only for PSP, like a handheld version of it. And then that was actually the first version that got officially released in English, and Back then, they didn't do the Japanese voices like we, like we just mentioned, so we got English voices for that. But after that released, then Xlead localized the PS the PC version. So it's the technically the older version of the game came out later than the PSP version in English, and because it was the older version of the game that released in 2012, I believe that did not have voices. So it was just the PC version on, you know, on Steam and GOG and whatnot. And so it's kind of weird. It's like, so this is like the PC version of the game and it's the newer version it, it, to us, but it didn't have the voices and a few other things. Um, I know Sarah at Exceed had sort of mentioned in the past that she wanted to add the voices to the PC version eventually, like take the PSP voices and add them to the PC version. And it was sort of one of those things that maybe it would never happen, but maybe it would. And it turns out they did add them finally. They added the English voices to the PC version and I, they probably just took the opportunity while they were already Salsetta released to add the Japanese voice track. Like, let's go ahead and add the English uh, 
the English voice track. And so it's really cool that they're able to do that. I they probably it's probably too old to add the Japanese voices at this point to that game. But while they already had the English voices available from the PSP version, they were probably just able to do that. They just took the time to do it. So that's cool. Now you can play it with English voices. And of course, yeah, you so, can the su- so the summary is, is that Celseta, you could play with either voice set now on PC. Yes. And then Othenthal Ghana is English. Still no right. Japan. Was it ever voiced in Japanese? The PSP version, but not oh, the PC not version. PC. All right. So I didn't need like a flow chart. <laughs> but uh, it's just kind of cool to see that these games, like we, all, we, we were talking about, obviously, like, Persona 4 uh, Golden and 5 Royal and updates and what what game what version of the game is remembered. This is obviously not on that scale, but it's cool to think that someone, like, for instance, I, I was a bit of a, a neophyte or whatever. When I played East Othenthal Ghana six years ago on PC, I just kind of assumed, oh, this game doesn't have voice, and I was fine with it. Uh, but now someone else next who buys it because it's on sale or whatever goes into it, just will always, his first experience of the game will be that it is voiced. So it's just kind of interesting to think that, you know, these games, people are going to have that different experience depending on what period of its release they played it, you know, when it was brand new, when it was fully updated, etc. But I do think that these, uh, Oath was one of my favorite of the series, and it's um, super the best cheap one. right now. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to talk about this situation that you didn't really uh, mention is that they also updated the PC version of uh, Ofen Fogana with uh, soundtracks from like the Sharp 8600 or 6800 and the uh, PC 88. So like old like Japanese computer game. Yeah, chiptunes. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Sharp uh, soundtrack, especially like... uh, the uh, Redmont theme for uh, that version is probably my favorite uh, version of that g- in general. Like it has a really uh, soothing soundtrack, but um, yeah, just uh, something. And that's something that other games like East Chronicles on PC has several different soundtrack options. So it's kind of because a lot of these games have been released, especially the original games, so many times in various formats so there's like various soundtrack options so it's nice to be able to kind of toggle between a more modern usually rock electric guitar heavy soundtrack or like the more chiptune type bits uh a lot of these tracks originally composed at least in the original game i'm not sure about othenthalgana by yuzo koshiro did he do othenthalgana or just like um, no he didn't do well actually i'm not even sure if he did wanderers yeah i'm trying to remember how far back he went I know that anyway. he did one and two. I'm not sure. He might have done Wanderers, but I'm not sure. I do know that um, he definitely didn't do Ophenfelgana, though, because yeah, that, he, that was the, he left at that point. So. Yeah, he didn't He didn't leave Falcom on the best of terms, but that's a story right. for another yeah. day. I, I'm just trying to remember if he was there, and I don't know. I mean, I could look this up. <laughs> Let's just see. Yeah. But anyways, some of those chiptune soundtracks are really well done, uh, and so it's cool that you could listen to those as well now. Yep. I don't think there's a bad version of the uh, East 3 soundtrack. He did so. oh, He did not do it. It was, oh, e- Iwadair did, I, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, Noriyuki Iwadair, is it Iwadair? Um, isn't he the he did, he guy did we were talking about um, that did Langrisser like last week? Or yeah, he did, I think he did some Langrisser stuff. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of other names here on here too that I am not super familiar with, but I recognize that name uh, for the original East Three soundtrack. Yeah, it's neat. So <laughs> we're gonna be we're gonna be waiting a while for East Nine apparently. So play play Oath, do it or yep. Origin. Yeah. That one's also great. Oath is extremely good, or eight. and it's only like 
Ocean Morgana like... is one of those games, like, if you have never played an East game, uh, I don't know if you should play it first, but if you don't really care too much about, like, playing the original game first, it's it's a, it's a pretty much a standalone game, as a lot of East games are, because they're only loosely connected to other titles. Right. Well, there are connections, they, but they're looser. It seems so like it's a that, really good game based on based on really James's really uh, import for nine that might be coming slightly less true. Oh, right. For these for these yeah. games, it is. Yeah, it's it's also only like ten or fifteen hours long, and so it's yeah, it doesn't overstay its welcome at all. Yep, and it's extremely good. Any of the uh, Napishtim Engine East games are pretty good. Like yep. The worst is probably E6, but even then, it has some things I'd say are. And that game came out. I played. I I originally played the uh, Konami PS2 version of that game. Oh yeah, man, that's that's rough. Uh, I did not enjoy it. The PC version has definitely improved that one because of like fast travel and whatnot. Like, I think that was like the main issue with uh, E6 back in back before that was a thing. Was because like it, it was nice being able it, like it reminded me of East One like having to run around the world like that. But in retrospect, that doesn't necessarily jive with the whole deal with uh, the with with the rest of the Nepishtim games. It feels more organic to be able to fast travel. Yeah, well, Nepishtim was the first in that style, so it's not as polished as Felgana or Origin who that came afterwards. Even though the PC release of that came. And once again, like the, the order of release in English and Japan of these games is not the same because of I how these that, games are That's just a one of line for days, anything, Falcom. Right. One of these days, I'm going to play the uh, PSP version of E6 just to see how poorly it actually runs. <laughs> but yeah. I think that kind of wraps up our discussion topics for this uh, week. There's a few things that we didn't touch on that we that are on the website. Uh, such as the um, the outward DLC that was announced. There's a few things that we actually haven't even touched on yet that have been like loosely announced, like new DLC incoming for Dragon Ball Z Kakarot, which I think George is sort of looking forward to. Uh, but there just wasn't a lot of details to really have much of a discussion on it. It uh, basically just confirmed that the DLC will have Beerus, which I think I mentioned. I'm a, surprised a while ago that got leaked. I'm surprised uh, that we didn't mention when we were talking about Kingdom Hearts earlier that you can now play the rest of the series on Xbox. Oh yeah, oh, all right. Yeah, that just announced. That just announced uh, a couple days ago. Well, I mean, released. Yeah, well, it's already released. It, it was. It was actually kind of weird because they didn't release date like officially. It just sort of showed up on the store, and then Square Enix did their usual like on the day of release a press release, basically saying now available. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't really. They didn't really announce it in any official way in terms of the date itself so it kind of just released so <laughs> yep but i kind of feel like it's a little next... i kind of feel like they should have done they should have released xbox before kingdom hearts 3 came out i i always felt it was sort of yeah. weird how they were releasing these updates on ps4 before kingdom hearts 3 came out basically saying like everyone get ready and then kingdom hearts 3 the whole time was coming out on P on xbox one but none of the other games were. So I kind of feel like they should have probably done this a while ago, but oh well. I am curious to see like what that split is. Like for Kingdom Hearts 3, what's the percent? Like, is it obnoxious? Is it like 95-5 or is it something more like 80-20 for PS4 to Xbox? I know yeah, it's actually, I really have no idea. I know what's actually kind of amusing is uh, the Xbox One, especially the Xbox One X being a bit more powerful than the PlayStation 4 models. 
is that there are a handful of these games that actually technically that's their best version, like performance wise, like Xbox. So, some, so Xbox someone who One. played someone who played the PS4 versions of like 2.8 or whatever, if that's something that they really important to them, they'll grab King Hearts 3 on Xbox or whatever. So but also even like per- I think yeah. it's I think it's I think it's kind of just amusing to think that like technically I think the best version of Nier Automata is only Xbox One version because the 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 PC version has its own issues of course that are kind of well documented and the xbox one version is just performs slightly better it's, than the it's, PlayStation it's not topical version. but uh right i think if you it go just, to the steam a, page for automata there's still like a news post that says like stay tuned that was never fun yeah. it's a shame uh but kingdom hearts on xbox and yakuza games are going over there too you know it's it's cool again platform agnostic i keep using that phrase but soon it's just going to be more uh, kind of the ecosystem you jive in and less about what game you specifically want to play. Though obviously that, that you know, crossover is going to extend years. There's, there are obviously plenty of exclusives. Right. Um, especially if you look at the PC front about like, I see people asking about, you know, Baldur's Gate so far is not announced for consoles. Uh, neither is the new King, uh, new Pathfinder, things like that. Uh, but this time next week, we'll be talking about what we see out of the early part. I think PAX East will be going on this day. I think it starts week, on Thursday. It's Thursday so. through Sunday. So, And most of the big announcements, I believe, are, are early. Like that yeah. Friday. Um, yeah. And then I, I, haven't, I haven't attended a PAX in like four years. But uh, usually the second half of Saturday and most of Sunday is pretty quiet, which is good if you're really like really trying to like if you're talking to like the developers like even if you're just visiting as a visitor you'll be able to talk to them on the show floor or things like that um or, or or meet with people uh who are covering it for your outlets or whatever but by this time next week we'll be able to talk about things we're expecting such as Baldur's Gate 3 and maybe a few things that we're not so it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that uh as always you can find us at our website at rpgsite.net you can find us on our twitter at rpgsite we do have a YouTube channel and uh, at RPG Site Net where we did upload some footage from Adam's trip for that Persona Five event, some of the the Kasumi uh, personal event and the boss fight. Uh, you can find us on Discord. You can easily get to that from the link on our homepage. Uh, and as always, you can find us here at the TetraCast every Saturday so far. <laughs> we kind of joke that it's seemingly weekly, so we don't tie ourselves to it. But as far as we know, we're going to stick to that. Uh, you yeah. can find me at uh, Zeo Masicot, Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. George, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me at, at G-Pug, which is G-E-P-U-G-G. Uh, Adam? K-I-N-G underscore S-E-D-A. And James? You can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T. All right. And as always, leave comments, leave feedback, whether it's on our on this post or on... Uh, our Twitter page. We love reading those. And as always, we will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening.